Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello there and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. Hey guys, I'm your host, Ryan Key. And we have a special guest today, another special guest. This is four. Four special guests, like a real fucking podcast. Look at us. We are so special. We just are creating such special things together. Magical. (laughs) Tell us who's here, Ryan. This is special for me. How long has it been? Ugh. What, that we've known? Who is it? Is it Burt Reynolds? I'm going to get there. I'm getting there. (laughs) Wait, didn't Burt Reynolds pass away? That would be fucking Force Ghost Bruce Reynolds on the show. (laughs) Yeah. I'm into that. Uh, 24 years ago or so, I met a wet behind the ears young lad in the theater department at my arts high school that I went to named Patrick Husinger. And we have remained disturbingly close for friends that met in high school (laughs) to be this close till 20 a quarter century later but my friend patrick is here he is uh one of the leading men on the amazon prime video show absentia starred on many times on on broadway in new york and uh he's a wildly successful actor and i have him right here confined in my house during the uh, coronavirus quarantine ladies and gentlemen the star of absentia my friend patrick husinger is here with us hi everybody to talk about some Star Wars. Hey. I am. I, I was just going to say quickly, I'm, I'm super happy to be here. Uh, you know, I started listening to this when when Ryan sent it to me, and I want to let you guys know, I think you're doing an amazing job. For somebody like me, who's not as much of a kind of deep dive fan, as I say, even though I'm a, I'm a pretty decent size fan, but I'm not a, as knowledgeable as you guys, but it's really invigorated my love for the Star Wars universe, and it's made me want to go back and watch these movies after I've listened to you guys talk about them and kind of see a lot of the things that you're, you're talking about that I hadn't noticed before. So, so thanks, for, uh, thanks for helping uh, you know, stoke that love up again. That's a, it's a really nice feeling. Thanks, man. Very cool. Like, aside from connecting with super nerds on our level, that's another one of our goals with this is to really kind of reinvigorate fandom for people. And also kind of help fans grow a little bit and maybe connect to things nostalgically that they hadn't to this level before. So it's awesome. Yeah. Today we're talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story on this quarantine cast. (laughs) Yeah, we're fully in fucking quarantine right now. It's dark times. Patrick and I have been uh, in my house in L.A. for six days. Yep. Uh, we started on Saturday. Yeah, to give you an idea where we are in the timeline, too, Ryan and I sat and watched the L.A. lockdown announcement last night yeah. and the California lockdown right. announcement last night. So that's just where we are in the world right now. It's crazy. It's wild. Crazy times. So long before this, before the dark times, before the Empire, what is your earliest Star Wars memory? My earliest, earliest Star Wars memory that I really think I can go back to now was my father coming home from like a work trip and he had brought two 
stuffed animals because I didn't have the toys growing up. I didn't have any of the figurines. We, uh, we, we didn't, I mean, honestly, we didn't have the money for that crap. Uh, but he brought home these awesome two stuffed animals and he brought home Wicket Ewok and he brought me Paplu uh, Ewok. And so that was my teddy bear for my entire like childhood was Paplu. And it came with a hood and I used to keep that thing around me and I carried it everywhere and, you know, burnt his head on the book reading light. <laughs> and uh, that was a big part of my life. And then I remember watching uh, watching all the movies, of course, growing up once I was old enough. You know, I'm a, just a tad, I think, younger than than Ryan. And uh, and so I, I, I never saw anything in the theater, was not old enough to. And then I remember, I mean, like moving forward from there, I became the kind of fan like I skipped a day in my senior year of high school. Episode one came out. We all skipped school. We were second in line waiting outside of the AMC movie theater where coincidentally Ryan and I both went and saw Force Awakens together. We saw The Rise of Skywalker together, the, the end. So you saw episode one and episode nine at the same theater. Oh, yeah, oh, nice. we did see. I'm sorry. We saw The Force Awakens in Nashville. You oh, I got them switched. Yeah, yeah. We got Force Awakens in Nashville, which I also flew there with my girlfriend at the time. I dressed up like Han Solo, although my hair didn't look like it because I was shooting a movie and my head was shaved and I had a beard, but like was up to the minute sewing on the red tape to my pants to nice. make it look like proper. And she went as a Chewbacca. Which is kind of hilarious because she basically just had one of like this really awesome Chewbacca hoodie that she popped on. And we all went together. We went and saw – I was a part – you guys talked about Ryan being in the movie theater where the gnarly like uh, uh, aggro people were getting mad about the seats. I was the guy holding onto the seats trying not to let people beat the crap out of me. I was like, no, my friends are coming. They're just getting popcorn right now. I mean it was really – Way more intense than it needed to be, but everybody forgot. Everybody forgot about it. Once it was the, like you were holding story. a cart full of toilet paper right now, basically. For real. I mean, honestly, for it was that intense. People were not happy with me, <laughs> like throwing a jacket over a seat, even though, you know, my friend was on the premises. I just had to take a roll out, and I felt real conflicted about it. Like, man, did I make the last one go far enough? <laughs> Ultimately, it's all good. We have food. You can wipe your ass with your hand. Or you can just yeah. make a compost toilet in the, I read today in your yard. It's yeah. good for the environment. That's a really good idea. Just get out there and shit like the pets. Go out back and pop a squat. Wow. Oh, fucking dark times. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Since there uh, is no opening crawl in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I got fired. <laughs> Ryan has been fired, and we'll just go straight to Stolen Plans. What have you done with those plans? Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was released on December 16th, 2016. Another birthday present for Ryan Key. Day before my birthday. Tagline, rebellions are built on hope. Which might be the quote when we get down to quotes. That's probably it. That's probably the name of the episode, let's be honest. Directed by Gareth Edwards. Written by Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy. The story, actually, though, was written by Industrial Light and Magic visual effects supervisor John Knoll, who worked on the prequel trilogy. He pitched this idea 10 years before the film was made. Wow. And actually felt like he needed to go pitch it again once they were acquired by Disney, just in case, you know, saying to himself, I'm going to wonder forever, what if I hadn't pitched this again, you know? And it worked out. Wow. Wow. I love that shit. So Whites and Gilroy just did the screenplay based on his story. Right. Copy that. I love that story. It stars Felicity Jones as Jyn Erso, Diego Luna as Cassian Andor, Alan Tudyk as K2SO, Donnie Yen, fucking classic Donnie Yen, as Chirrut, 
Wen Jiang as Baze, Ben Mendelssohn as Director Krennic, who is badass. We'll talk about him. Guy Henry mm-hmm. as Tarkin, as the body of Tarkin. We'll talk about that too. Kind of a younger actor, actually, to, to, yeah. to be the body actor for that. Yeah. Pretty cool. Forrest Whitaker as Saw Gerrera, badass again. Riz Ahmed as Bodhi. Mads Mikkelsen as Galen Erso, also awesome. This is a hell of a fucking cast. Jimmy Smith as Bell Organa. Damn. I can't wait to actually talk to you guys about, because that, that's one of the things I feel like I'm going to be able to offer is going through these actors, because these are actors that I was a fan of, and I knew all of their major films prior to watching this movie for the first time, you know, when it came out. And when I saw them one by one pop up on screen, I was like, holy shit, Matt yeah. Mickelson's here having a yeah. scene with Ben Mendelsohn? Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit, you know, at some point with uh, your audience about great movies to go watch them in if you liked, you know, this actor kind of thing. Yeah, let's cruise through this and go straight into that because I'm into it. Alistair Petrie as General Draven, Genevieve O'Reilly as Mon Mothma reprising her role as well from episode three. So cool. Anthony Daniels as C-3PO. Hey. And of course, James Earl Jones voicing Darth Vader. Fucking tying it up. This cast, I think, is the most inclusive of all eras. And For sure. The most reprisals of roles, the most recasting of now older characters who had to be portrayed as younger. It's just fucking, it's awesome. It, it's really incredible. I mean, when I'm, I've done a lot of, you know, like theater stuff. I like theater trained actors. I love watching theater trained actors on film. They always tend to be able to bring a greater depth and body of work. Uh, and every single one of these actors is one. And I know some people may not recognize, say, like Mads Mickelson. People will be like, oh, Blood Tears from Casino Royale. But like, if you really liked Mads Mickelson, who played uh, Galen or so, you can go watch The Hunt which is an amazing movie where he does not play a villain that will blow your mind. Guarantee you it's a, it's a great foreign film. Then you got Forrest Whitaker, who everybody is probably, you know, may recognize as an Oscar winner from Last King of Scotland. But man, go back and watch Ghost Dog. Then you got Riz Ahmed, who is the first South Asian uh, to ever win an Emmy for male acting ever. Oh, damn. Um, he is from England, though. He is uh, British, but he's also, as some people know, you know, he's a, a, a rapper uh, under the name of Riz MC. And, uh, and you'll recognize him from Nightcrawler, which was also written by Tony Gilroy. And he was also in Born Legacy, which was also written by Tony Gilroy. And then, like, Felicity Jones, man. You know, if you don't know her, go back and watch Like Crazy. Obviously, you know, she got nominated for Oscar for Theory of Everything and all that. But Alan Tudyk is fun. I toured with Monty Python Spam a lot. Oh back like one of my early jobs when I was like 25 and he was one of the originators of the role on Broadway. We were both directed by Mike Nichols who did uh you know the movie The Graduate, he did a uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf the film, he did uh, Closer the film and uh, yeah, all amazing movies, very talented and great teacher too that um, Mike Nichols rest in peace. But uh, Alan Tudyk has played a robot before. If you don't realize, he was an iRobot. He played yeah. the robot in iRobot. He also, I guess, made kind of his first fame with Firefly and stuff. But I've done table readings with him at Pixar, Disney Pixar, uh, before. And I learned after doing a table reading with him, uh, somebody pulled me aside. They were like, do you know, you know a little factoid about Alan? I was like, hit me with it. They're like, we put him in everything now. Like, what are you talking about? They're like, uh, this is before Lassiter got me too, but they were like, John Lassiter thinks that he's like our rabbit's foot 
and you know he's the horseshoe above the doorway and he's literally in every disney pixar movie since like 2012 when he's uh came in with wreck it ralph he's like the chicken or the rooster in moana all he does is cluck that's literally all he does they'll find a little weird place to put him in and everything and so here he is in this it's so interesting that he's a dude who he's the, the voice behind I guess in the body behind all these other characters, his face isn't on screen as much. No, it's not. But has like a distinct look. You know what I mean? He has a face that yes. is recognizable, I feel like, on screen. But now he's just, mm-hmm. he's behind all these characters, which is interesting. Well, he's so talented and he's got a great chameleon quality that is he can really reflect in his voice too. And a lot of people yeah. will know him also, by the way, from our generation, from Dodgeball. He was the pirate. Um, that's like yeah. the big one that everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah. Then for me, other personal faves, because I'm a big foreign film fan, is uh, Donnie Yen. Um, Fuck who, yeah. when he first came on screen, blew my mind. So if you haven't seen Ip Man, Ip Man is a great Chinese film that is about the story of this true story man named Ip Man, who was one of the first great master teachers of the martial arts of Wang Chung. He, in fact, was famously Bruce Lee's teacher. Um, And so they made this awesome movie that turned into a trilogy about this man's life and how he trained this whole village with this defensive martial arts style. And it's, it's really, really amazing. So obviously when he's doing all the martial arts in the film, that is him. There are no stunt people. And on top of it, he's a wonderful actor, which I want to talk about because my favorite scenes are some of my favorite. He's the man. He's the man in this film. I mean, and like I was going through favorite quotes in this film, like putting them together in the, in the show notes and like, they're all his, like his character's quotes. He, yeah. Yeah. He got great writing. Yeah. He's also just super talented actor, man. Yeah. And then, dude, which I know you guys want to talk about this more, but Ben Mendelsohn, I didn't know who he was. I discovered him prior to Bloodline coming out, which is a great little season one of that show is a great uh, season. I don't necessarily like love the show, but he's great on it. There's a great Australian film called Animal Kingdom that stars like Joel Edgerton. It's got Ben Mendelsohn and it was his breakout film. And he is, he will blow your mind and portrays such a successful psychopath in that film. He's amazing. And then of course, Diego Luna from Narcos, of course, but where I first, I first discovered him in uh, Itumaba Tambien directed by uh, it's Alfonso Cuaron, and he was with uh, Gael Garcia Bernal. That movie came out, must have been like 99, 2000 or something like that. 2001. And, uh, yeah, 2001. And Alfonso Cuaron went on to direct uh, and completely changed the Harry Potter franchise into the quality version that we all know. And he took away that Christopher Columbus polish and turned it into like dark, weird Gary Oldman Harry Potter. Very much what happens uh, in Rogue One for Star Wars, if you ask my opinion. Yeah, a lot of the shine was, was taken off of this. A lot of the polish yeah. was removed for this film. Completely agree. I will close all of my like freak out about the creative team here in just a second. But part of that, we were watching it and I was talking about the, how it has this great gritty quality to it. It manages to keep the stakes extremely high between the performances, but uh, uh, also you know, not be kind of too scary for the kids as you guys are talking about. It manages to to walk that line really well. And I think that's largely in part to like Tony Gilroy's addition to the script. And this is the guy that were like Michael Clayton, which is a George Clooney kind of big dramatic turn. Nightcrawler, which you haven't seen it with Jake Gyllenhaal is an awesome, awesome film. He did all the Bourne movies and it's probably a big reason for bringing Riz Ahmed into the films. And then the other big thing that people won't really talk about too much that I like talking about is the casting director, Gina J. She is the, responsible for bringing this great talent together. She'll be the one who is 
finding very successful actors like Mads Mikkelsen, who you may not have necessarily thought of first for the role, or Donnie Yen, and then suddenly you're like, yeah, it has to be that person. You just realize it as a director, as a creator all at once, and it's usually because of the great minds of the casting director like that. And to give you an idea of some of the other ones that she's done and how you'll recognize that it matches the tone of this film, Bird Box with Sandra Bullock, the Night Manager, the TV show, The Lobster, uh, which is a great film made by the guy who made um, The Favorite. And then, of course, every episode of Black Mirror. Oh, wow. It's the same casting director who did. So when you're watching those episodes and you're like, wow, where'd these actors come from that I've never heard of that are so talented? She's the one bringing that family in. Damn. I mean, a collection of actors like this are on screen listening so much to each other and deliver zero false notes which is a complaint with a lot a lot of the other films there's not you really would be hard-pressed to find a single moment that doesn't feel authentic or truthful in both low stakes moments where they're running around a planet or having a casual conversation to high stakes moments you know when the house is about to burn down yeah brilliant shit man moving on with stolen plans two hour 13 minute runtime rated pg-13 for scenes of violence and action sci-fi violence and action budget estimated 200 million grossed 151 million opening weekend in the u.s not so bad 532 ish million total in the u.s to date just over a billion worldwide so fucking crushing i think for a side story a non skywalker saga movie i'm sure everybody was fucking ecstatic at lucasfilm and disney The hype for this was huge because it was the first one of its kind. Yeah. And we talked on our solo episode about how that hype wore off for a lot of different reasons. But this one, I think, to me, is sort of a combination of surge because of the hype, but also because it's an incredible film, as the critics agree and most all fans agree. You know what I mean? So we talked about with Solo how maybe people were kind of hearing from people like, oh, it's not that good or... Yeah, You know, he's not that good as Solo, so it kept them maybe out of the theater to see it. I'll wait for it to come out, you know, on iTunes or whatever. But with this one, even if that was happening, people were saying, uh, no, dude, I've seen it three times. Right. So I think it was like the hype of the first Star Wars story combined with people's genuine adoration of the film after they saw it. 7.9 on IMDb, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes with an 86% audience score. Crushing again. Shout on digital. 35 millimeter film, standard and IMAX formats, the huge. Filmed in Iceland. Uh, Please try to say them. All kinds say of places right. I can't just try it. pronounce. Just try it. Oh, God. Okay. When I was doing these notes, I would have just put Iceland if I wanted to hear you say Iceland. I put the cities because I want to hear you say them. Son of a bitch. Icelandic is one of those languages that will put like seven consonants in, in a row with no vowels, and you have to figure out what that sounds like. It's in like the top three hardest languages to learn, right? Psyched. Renis Fiara? Yeah, dude. Try that. I like that. Krafla? Krafla? That's got to be right. Lamu? Lamu Atoll in the Maldives? Yeah, Lamu Atoll in the Maldives. It's like, it's an, it's a, Fuck, gr- what is this? It's a group of islands. It's where they, it's where they shot the Scarif stuff. Oh, yeah, all the stuff with the palm trees. But I'm, but more than filling people in on where it actually is, I'm more enjoying you saying the word. So please carry on. Yeah, uh, this is a great segment, guys. Canary <laughs> Wharf Station, London, England, uh, Wadi Rum, Jordan. Nailed it. That's it. We're done. I crushed. Yeah, you got Jordan correct. Good job, dude. Jo- Jordan? Jordan? <laughs> England? England. That one, those two always, those two always make me slip up. <laughs> Han or Han? 
All right, let's get into it. I think we spoiled first impressions. It's we know we fucking loved it, right? Where were you the first time you guys saw it? Did you what was the theater that you went to together when you had your romantic moment? We didn't. No, we did not. We didn't see this. We did not see this one together. Oh, it was yeah. The other thing. Tell me the other thing. This thing. I saw this film on tour in England. England. Funny thing about it is, I actually wasn't that stoked on my first viewing. I wasn't blown away either. I left the theater feeling a bit underwhelmed and I couldn't figure out why because I was like conflicted with this thought about how stunning the visuals were but felt like the film just didn't land on me. I saw it in IMAX again as soon as I got home and I was like, oh, speakers. That's why I didn't like it. I know it's why. Because the theater I saw it in in England I think this is okay to talk a little smack, but I just want to let the people in the United Kingdom know that your movie theaters are garbage. They're just garbage. They're garbage. (laughs) The candy sucks. The sound sucks. It's one thing, okay? Like, there's a lot of things we do wrong, let me put it that way, in this country. But one thing we do better than anyone is movie theaters. And so I saw the movie, this, like, epic war film, and I got that vibe. I was like, oh, wow, I'm watching, like, a Star Wars Saving Private Ryan. This This is gnarly. But then it was like, the scare, the whole scare scene was like oh, in the that's theater. Rough. That's yeah. rough. So I was so and we and, watched it on a great sound system last night, and that was half the battle. Yeah, it, it was just and it was like it was something about yeah. the way it was. The surround was mixed in the theater too. I mean, like the dialogue was totally audible, but the SFX were just not. And when I saw it in IMAX, it felt like the world was ending. No pun intended. For those of you who remember where we're, what time we're recording this podcast in, quarantined in our homes. Uh, but it was like <laughs> explosive and gnarly. And I genuinely was like, I love this movie. My thing when I saw it the first time was not so much I didn't like the movie. It was more like, why didn't I like that as much as I feel like I should have, you know? Right. Mm. And I think that just is a testament to like the movie going experience. The theater and and the sound and the projector calibration and all that stuff can affect your viewing experience in a way you might not really think about all the time. Yeah. yeah, that might affect you subconsciously. It's interesting. Your guys' knowledge is buried in music, is buried into sound, and you, that's something that'll jump out at you. And uh, I, I'm always buried in performance. And so I often will judge films based on the quality of the performances. I can move past if I'm no, you know what I mean? Like I'm not watching Game of Thrones looking for like the best acting ever because some of Game of Thrones had some of the best acting ever and some of it was just, terrible same thing with star wars you know star wars can have amazing performances sometimes i mean truly breathtaking performances and sometimes they're just you know they're not that great they don't you don't connect to the people that way because they like vulnerability or they come off a little cartoonish or something where were you the first time you saw it i did not see this one in the theater i was filming for most of the time that it was out and it was (laughs) it was a period of my life where i was taking acting uh a little too seriously. I was kind of trying out different styles and I was in a kind of little bit of a method phase. And I was thinking if I was working on a job that I couldn't leave the house, I later learned that it's really mentally unhealthy to do that. And uh, the people who I watch that do that are usually pretty nuts. Like in and real I life. chose an inner yeah. piece. Yeah, in real life. That- These are the people who are like, oh, okay, so I'm playing a undercover narc. Let's go get some heroin. Well, they won't go that far, but maybe, you know, it's like Daniel Day-Lewis is my favorite actor, right? But the the guy still like made people call him Mr. President on set famously with Lincoln with that with that film and that's I back it. Robert Pattinson had a great method acting quote 
is that I always say about people who do method acting, you only ever see people do the method when they're playing assholes. He said, you never see someone being lovely to everyone while they're really deep in character. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. it's kind of yeah. true. Nobody's ever like, man, I'm playing like this super lovely, happy human being. And I'm so buried in the character and I'm just like good to everyone. They're always like, I got to stay in a corner and I got to stay in this crazy right. space and be a complete and absolute shitbag to everyone that I encounter. And that's taxing. That's taxing on uh, yeah. on a crew. That's taxing on your cast. It's taxing on everybody. Anyhow, what a tangent. Well, Mr. President. <laughs> I was in one of those little phases before I discovered what a shitbag I was being um, while we were filming the movie, so I didn't go out and watch it. But I watched it at home. You're really just, please edit all that out. I watched it at home, and I remember loving it. This is my first reaction because I'm more performance-pointed. And I think I've had, like, Bose headphones on. I remember sitting and watching it on my... You know, giant TV I had just bought so I could watch movies and TV shows and loving it right at the outset too because I already knew that Felicity Jones was in it and I'm such a huge fan of the way that she portrays human beings and how accessible she is and how realistic she is and how she's just always truthful again that's an actress you could find me any moment in any of her films where you can watch it and say you just lied you know, it's, it'll be impossible. She's so, so good. And she really is able to imbue vulnerability into all of her characters in a very unique and special way. I think you needed someone like that for this movie because it was the first film outside of the Skywalker saga. So how are we as the audience going to connect with a character we don't know, mm-hmm. you know, that is going to carry this central role in this very important story? So you needed an actor who could pull you into her reality immediately like the first time you saw her on screen so success felicity success agreed well done. what a talent where are we um oh now i talk <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry bro no no i'm so sorry hey adam where were you when you saw the movie <laughs> i was literally completely lost that was an adhd moment well that's what you get for drinking beer at three in the afternoon shh don't tell me are we like three ADHD guys doing a podcast right now? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I have that that thing. Be quiet. Um, <laughs> I was at home in St. Louis. Saw this with my wife as usual. But the memory from the theater that sticks with me most is when I think I saw it the second or third time with my nephew. And I had A New Hope queued up on my phone to start uh, to make the whole thing real time. So I watched it back to back. and We sat there wow. in the seats in the theater and watch the beginning of a new hope. So that shit was so cool. Now you can go, of course, go on YouTube and and see those scenes back to back, but there in the moment was sick. I've done the whole thing, kind of watching him as one four hour long film at home before, like just straight through and highly recommend it's rad. We should do an episode on different sequences to watch. Now that we have the whole Skywalker saga, right? I have a really just too much extra, extra over the top version that includes pausing A New Hope at the Yavin 4 briefing, watching Rogue One, and then continuing A New Hope. Dude, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. I haven't done it that way, but it's on paper, and I would love to. I don't, I don't think I've ever had an original thought that carried as much weight as that in my life. <laughs> like, I want to cancel my the rest of my work for the day, even though I just watched this movie last night, and do what you just said. It's got to be awesome. Thank you. So, um, first times, it was first time seeing it. I have a little thing in here about how this was the first Star Wars film. You know, it's 
in the Skywalker saga all the way through, there is the concept of systems and the galaxy sort of spanning and this great reach of, of the outer rim and all the places. So you're, you're transported, you travel around a lot. One of the things this film did, I thought, well and was very cool and had never been done before was the use of title cards so that every time we were switching to a new system, you got the name of it. Yeah. Which was a cool thing for uber nerds like us to be like, ooh, that's what that system's called. But for the casual fan, too, to be like, oh, these worlds all have names and they're these cool, vibey words, you know. And it just it really made this film feel huge, like we were all over the galaxy. Yeah. And I think did it better than certainly I think did it better than the sequel trilogy did referencing the light speed skipping and just the, the missions they were going on. I mean, it tracked for the Skywalker saga, but in this one, to me, it really felt like we were in this espionage thriller that was mm-hmm. traveling all over the galaxy and we were learning all these new places where the Empire was controlling. It was really cool and I think a, a cool technique that they used that had never been done before in a Star Wars film. Yeah, it fits the vibe. It really is as close to like a genre film as we've gotten in the Star Wars universe. For sure. I mean, it's a war film but also has that sort of spy thriller, I don't know, like special ops kind of vibe to it too. Yeah. So it could be as big as Saving Private Ryan or as small as, I don't know, Lone Survivor, like, you know, a group of SEALs going in to take on a mission kind of thing. And also, you know, we but it plays into the Cassian Andor series coming to Disney Plus where we're going to get yeah. to see, see the espionage side of this whole thing, which is just super cool and I can't wait for that. So exciting, man. That's yeah. going to be so good. Patrick, you were like, Mentioning cinematography, the cinematographer, how you think that plays into this film and why it works so well as a war film in the Star Wars galaxy, Star Wars universe. Well, I was saying, you know, in the first three episodes and uh, episodes one through three and episodes seven through nine, they all seem to have this kind of polished, glossy vibe to them in a way that I actually think that four through six did not. Four through six seemed to have this kind of real rugged feel to it often. And this cinematographer arguably might have the most experience of everybody in the entire creative team. His name's uh, Greg Frazier, and he's going to be doing the new The Batman. He's got Dune coming out, but he also did uh, films like Zero Dark Thirty, mm. um, which have you seen is an incredibly gritty and very realistic film. He did the film Lion, which if you haven't seen, uh, is just a, a, an extraordinarily beautiful film. And he also did Foxcatcher, which is also a great movie and feels very, um, he has an ability to create these large scale action sequences, but also come down and make you feel like you're, you're amidst the action the same way that, you know, you referencing Saving Private Ryan did. You, you feel like you're there sometimes. And we needed that a lot. I've talked a lot. I've referenced Rogue One probably an annoying amount of times for listeners. But the reason that I reference it so much is exactly what you're saying, the idea of that polish being gone and how grounded in reality this film feels, even though we're in this fantastical world with lasers and spaceships and sonic explosions in space and we Mm -hmm. suspend disbelief of science and all those things. It's like real, though, this one. This one's like, oh, these are the grunts on the ground doing the work, fighting the war. And I don't know if they'll ever make one like this again, but I I just love that. Dude, there are some things that are like, I wonder if it's more the DP or if it's more Gareth Edwards, but there are some things that actually are like on the hard science fiction level, a little more accurate, like the depiction of the ships in space and the Death Star. The lighting is a lot harsher, like it actually Mm -hmm. would be in space. There's no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So like shadows are really crisp and hard and you really see it. I guess the first like big reveal of the Death Star 
there's a Star Destroyer right in front of it. And there's a thing with scale as well that I want to talk about where like everything looks big as fuck. You really get Mm -hmm. an idea of how huge all this shit is. You see a Star Destroyer and it's tiny compared to the Death Star. Love that. And it's coming out of the shadow of the planet and the light's really harsh, the sharp shadow. But the way they set that up, they started up kind of zooming out and you see the Star Destroyer and they really, they start with the tiny ship, I think. Mm -hmm. And they show you and they give you an idea of what the size of a human being is like, Mm -hmm. right? You're like in the window of the Star Destroyer maybe. And then it comes out and you see how large that is in compared to humans. And then they use the scale of the Star Destroyer to show you how large the Death Star is. And it's so brilliantly yeah. done. Notice it's really harsh white because that sunlight with no atmosphere would make that gray Star Destroyer like bright fucking white. And the, the shadow is, as they come out of the planet's shadow is really sharp. And all the shadows being cast by like the chunky parts of the Star Destroyer down onto the other pieces are really sharp. Because that's how it. it is in space. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't look cinematic. It looks fucking harsh. And, it doesn't look filtered right. and they, in the wrong they way. They balanced that really well. I liked how they were as accurate as they can be in Star Wars to science when they disabled the shields in the Star Destroyer in the final, like the space battle above Scarif. They disable the shields and, and they lose engine power. Mm-hmm. And instead of like this, like we're crashing to the planet, you know, which wouldn't happen. They had to like bring in that battering ram ship to move it because yeah. just because the engines died you know, it would continue to stay on whatever trajectory it was on or just literally sit in the same space that it was in before the engines died. So there were definitely lots of little super nerdy science things in it that I think they did pay close attention to, which again, grounds the film more in reality than some of the other Star Wars films. Yeah. You brought up talking about that that kind of um, old school technology with the new school technology. You guys have talked about this on the podcast before, but I think you also brought up when we were watching it last time about the chronology of the technology and how we aren't yet with the AT-AT walkers yet that have the force fields on them. You know what I mean? They didn't have them yet mm-hmm. in the fight. Uh, on Scarif. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because yeah. we were talking about last night how like all the rebel ships just kind of fly in. And if you remember the struggle on Hoth where it was like, oh, right. we have to harpoon the tow cables to the legs of these things because we can't get through. We can't blast them. And then in this film, they're just rolling through and like blasting them down, you know. But then I was like, well, if we're going to try to like do the thing where you try to justify the writing or the plot holes. These are pre-Empire, so it's possible they hadn't developed it's, the tech. It's like just before. They would have learned yeah. from that experience right. and then upgraded the technology yeah. on it. To add shields to the walkers. Yeah. To answer your question a little bit, Adam, you're talking about, we were talking about the polished quality and who deserves credit for that. And I, I actually agree with you. I, I don't know who it is because we, we aren't sitting in that room with everybody as they were coming up with, you know, in their creative meetings. But I'm with you that it's likely Gareth Edwards who was responsible as the director for bringing on that director of photography he would have been the last person to voice in on who to choose when Mm -hmm. gina j was bringing in the casting options he would have been the individual who was choosing as he was directing how to play out the scenes as they were being acted which i think is such a powerful part of this story he would have been the one confirming with the director of photography yes i like that shot because it's going to look i mean that's his job he's the one that fields all of these difficult and complicated questions and has to do them at a drop of a hat. And another thing too that we haven't talked about that was so successful in the kind of quality of it is the production design in this and the costumes. You know, the costumes in the new one and the production design, that's another thing that felt so polished to me. It was another thing where like C-3PO was just so shiny all the time. Mm -hmm. Even after like minor battles or like you think he would collect dust and not have had time to clean it off. And when you go back and you watch them on Endor or something like that, and he's dirty, man. He's dirty when when we see him for the first time in A New Hope. He's not buffed out. 
And I liked that quality in the costumes. It was always my complaint with the TV show Lost. Often you would see <laughs> characters show up and like, they just had like clean clothes. And I'm like, ah, oh, come on guys. Like yeah, fresh makeup. Yeah. And it's like, even if you're going to keep it polished and for the kids, that's such an easy vessel to take your audience and say, we're in reality now. Yeah. And kids are fucking dirty, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that struck me about this film that they did so successfully was the fact that you're going to walk into a theater in 2016 to look at spaceships and characters in costumes from the last time you saw them was 1986. And you've also seen a film a year prior that updated everything. That's, you know, all the first order stuff, which was a mostly successful upgrade to the previous tech and the previous costumes and uniforms and things. But in this one, the little teeny things they did, they were like, well, we got to throw some new stuff in, like the new ties that were flying around in Scarif. They kind of had like a more flat, like long cockpit sort of vibe and like mm-hmm. flat wings mm-hmm. that point out. They were like interceptor. They did like little things like that, new droids here and there, things like that. The um, But well, the death troopers, obviously, yeah. that are with Krennic, that was a huge, stunning visual that felt so familiar because of the shapes of their helmets and the shapes of the armor, but it was still brand new. The all black and like the longer kind of breathing apparatus in the front. That minute attention to detail to say, we're going to keep the heritage of these original costumes, but we're just going to spice them up a little bit. That's the difference, I think, in what you're talking about, Patrick, in the new Mm -hmm. sequel trilogy versus this is that they were like really true to the original. And I just remember sitting there being transported like this is the same universe that we were living in in Mm -hmm. Return of the Jedi where we left the original trilogy. But expertly updated. Exactly. And it does come completely down to as you said, the production design, the costume designer, and then last word, Buck stops with the director to say, I like that costume. Yeah, because it's the director who looks to them and says, hey guys, I want this to be, I want this to have this edge and this quality to it. And, you know, I brought up that example before with Alfonso Cuaron coming in after Christopher, for those Harry Potter, Star Wars crossover fans. I brought up the, the thing when you watch the first two Harry Potters, it literally is like a different landscape where Hogwarts is. It's like flat. It's super polished. Everything's green. And then you go to part three and Hogwarts is like hilly and it's got more gothic elements to it. And the costumes are a little darker and like things are a little bit weirder. And that's because Alfonso Carna came and said like, let's just do a reboot. Let's just do right. a whole damn reboot. And that's kind of what I feel like Gareth Edwards must have done here or at least snuck in on his own is this kind of more authentic gritty quality well that comes down to source material too to me because harry potter if you've read the books which i have they're they're dark man they're dark twisted stories to read to little kids and so the source material for this uh, although you know they as you mentioned adam there was like an idea for this that's been sitting on the table for a decade so there is that source material but the real source material here is the original trilogy because all these characters are leading up to the very first Mm -hmm. second of the first film so They have really good source material and you can blow it with your interpretation of it and make a Mm -hmm. try to make Harry Potter a children's book, you know, a little golden book. Or you can interpret it for how the story really reads and be, you know, a a visionary genius. And so I think the interpretation of the source material for Rogue One was just knocked out of the park. Last thing I'll say on that interpretation, even just the way shots are framed, the way the camera moves, it takes that like grittiness and puts it. The handheld vibe is what I'm getting at here. Like yeah. anything that's not a sprawling like landscape shot or a space shot is very handheld. And it just like completely mm-hmm. matches what this movie is about. That's Gareth Edwards. Whereas the Skywalker saga is like just track shots. 
I mean, it's just right. the yeah. camera's on, yeah. on rails. When we talked about a specific shot for people to go back and watch. We, we paused and actually rewound it because I loved it so much. So when Merrick gets shot down and they watch his plane go down and like say other versions of the Star Wars universe, they'll show that plane going down and exploding into the side of the ship. But instead, what they did in one shot was watch him come from the sky, fall down, explode behind palm trees. You don't even see the actual explosion. You see the smoke and the plume come up from behind the palm trees. But the camera for that view follows down and is across the water from where a battle's happening. And all in one shot, you see soldiers, rebel soldiers running forward into the frame. And so you really feel like you were on the beach there or you were coming out yeah. of one of the boats and you were part of the action. And and it was all kind of that, that handheld feel. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that that makes you feel like you're a part of the world and not just watching it through a window. It was like an Iwo Jima film with lasers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was awesome. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, like, that kind of blocking takes so much thought, and it's surprising, interesting, and really impressive that a director like Gareth Edwards, who's kind of famous for just getting in the location and pointing the camera around and saying, like, okay, let's just grab some cool shit. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the, actually those, the shots in the trailer weren't used. They were just like, oh, this looks cool. Let's get this. Like Jin with uh, that opening behind her, like the shot with she's on the platform at the top of the, the Citadel thing. None of that was used, but he is just the kind of guy that's like, oh, let's see what this looks like. Yet there are these amazingly blocked shots where you go from like a wide and a crash to a medium and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're back on the ground. You know what I mean? Like I do know what you mean. That's either, either he crams all that into his head or he does a bunch of work ahead of time and then acts like it's off the top of his head, like a freestyle rapper that's cheating. I was going to say, I wonder if he's one of the directors that like his LD just is like, can't stand it. Cause he's like, I don't care. Just go shoot it. No, no. It's actually, I mean, in my experience, it's both, you know I mean? One of the great thoughts about filmmaking that I've ever heard is that you make the movie three times. Yeah. You make the movie when you write the script and you sit down and you do your best possible, you know, version that you can while you're and you make the movie in its fullest. And in pre-production, you do everything, everything as planned out as you possibly can. And then the second part is when you're actually on set and you're making the movie. And when you're doing that portion of making the movie, you have to throw all of that shit away. You really do. You have to get there. And even though you had the storyboard plan to have the ship come through, crash behind the trees, you may look at it when you get there and say, you know what? It's just not right for where we are in the story and the narrative that I collected from the scenes that I've already shot over here. You're making the best possible movie that you can on the ground. And then base, I mean, big budget movies like this have the opportunity to do reshoots, but say it didn't, you then have all those colors on your palette as an editor. And those colors on the palette are what were actually filmed on set. And then you go into the editing room and you have to make the best possible movie that you can based on the colors that are available to you on the palette. And that's your film. I mean, that is the third time that it gets made and you have to embrace that process. And if you don't embrace that process, then you will go nuts as a DP or you will go nuts as a writer or you will go nuts as an actor. You have to just know right. that everything, it's a living organism and you have to embrace that idea. And it's that way with all art, by the way. Yeah. It's, it is a living yeah, organism that is constantly in flow. Even as you guys, I'm sure, were writing songs and playing out on the road, I bet you the songs were changing shape often and maybe you even had better ideas and sometimes changed words in songs. Shit evolves, yeah. I think the concept that you, Adam, you mentioned with the handheld camera feel and stuff like that, it's, like, it's just my kind of like, hmm, I wonder if it's like that with the advent of independent film being what it is now and the idea that you, granted, they had a quarter billion dollars to make this movie. So, uh, yes, yeah. they could do reshoots and all this other stuff. But with that handheld style and this location shooting, you know, this stuff was all 
you know, they were on the beach, they were in Iceland, they were, mm-hmm. you know, a good director in today's climate uses that natural light. So they can just jump mm-hmm. around and be like, shoot that, shoot that, that looks awesome, get that. And so much of this movie felt like that. Like it, they were just like, dude, that's beautiful, shoot it. And then it was just in the movie. Like it was just some mountains, you know? And I loved the way that it felt so photographic. We could talk about all of this stuff for four hours straight, just the stuff that we think is cool. But let's get- <laughs> Especially when we have a filmsman on set with us, you know? It's like... Filmsman. Filmsman. But let's slow her down. Let's get into some things that we feel like we don't agree with, that people talk shit on. A certain point of view... Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. What do the haters say, Ryan Key? Well, I was doing some research on this, and this film is very well-reviewed. So kind of awesome because you're really digging out the dickheads. You're really digging out the people who are like, (laughs) you know what? Overall, globally, this film is adored, but I'm going to find something about it that sucks and write about it. So I did my best to find those things, and they're very... um, the few major, I mean, there was like um, the rap.com and I think New York Times. There were a couple of really big film reviewers that did this, that chose to talk shit, but their, their ideas were very similar. So the kind of sweeping thing was that this has happened with The Rise of Skywalker. I think the whole sequel trilogy as well. Too much fan service with just the amount of ships and stormtroopers and the plot that we have to get to the Death Star plans. We can talk about that. Some people took issue with the actors being incredible, but the words they were given, not giving them enough depth. And then uh, another big kind of overwhelming one is that it was just too serious overall. I'll read you this one. Will uh, Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H from New Republic. One of the many problems with Rogue One, a Star Wars story, is that so much of the joy is gone. The movie is stultifyingly serious. By the way, I copied this from the website, and it's stultifyingly is underlined red, so I don't even know if that's a word, but good on you, Will. The movie is stultifyingly serious, as leaden and dead on its feet as the infamous prequels. Both provided us with endless council meeting, charisma-free leads, and distracting technological innovations, in quotes. The movie is so caught up in the mythology of the Star Wars universe that it never establishes itself as its own animal. We can cover that. Consequence of Sound is a website. They wrote a really, really, really long, gnarly destruction piece of the hate piece of the film, but I'm not even going to read it because I've never seen Consequence of Sound write an article that praised anything before, ever. So I'm just not even going to do it. And, uh, Fuck those guys. <laughs> um, Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle. Part of the problem is director Gareth Edwards, whose previous big credit is Godzilla, which was mostly just spectacle. With the help of four screenwriters, Edwards turns Star Wars into a war movie, and that is a fundamental error. War movies are about toil, half-victories, moral compromise, and self-doubt. Star Wars is all about good versus evil, about the hard, rewarding work of bringing the light and casting out darkness. Yo, let's go in reverse order and start right there, and then I'll add the one thing that's left here. So, we all like it partly because it is a war movie. So, his description of what Star Wars is, what he declares Star Wars is... I suppose applies to the Skywalker saga, but the whole idea of this is to break from that and give us more, give us different things in the universe, right? Isn't that the fucking point? It's what everyone loved about this movie for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel like what you know he's discussing is like a taste thing almost. Yeah. It's like I want Star Wars to not be a war movie, and he prefers it to dig into the duality of man, which is what the whole celebration of the Skywalker saga is. Um, it's all about the duality, and here none of that is present. I mean, we really don't ever have a big conversation about are you evil or are you good? Everything's cloudy. It's, it's, it yeah. lives in a more gray space throughout as humanity does. Yeah. Antiheroes and shit. Cassian Andor, the appeal of him is that he does live in that gray area. I mean, he says it straight up in the dialogue. It's deliberate. They made the choice to make him a person who does questionable shit. And then at the end, that monologue he gives to Jin to convince yeah. her that he believes her is, yeah, I've done terrible shit. And if we don't fight, if we don't win, I can't live with myself for having done that shit. Like, it's, it is the point. Yeah. We shake that character's hand in the movie, and then he kills, clearly, what was a co-spy or friend of his, like, right afterward. Yeah, right out of the gate. And he's one of our heroes. Yeah. We're talking about incredibly complicated people having to make... I mean, if he's... First of all, that reviewer just complained about making difficult moral decisions. I mean, what the, what the hell is that? Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, rewatch the movie. Well, I was going to say, this one's really good as far as just, like... Just digging, just how people got it. They got to dig for something to <laughs> talk shit. This one's really good. Remember how I was t- I was mentioning the title cards and how the planets had all these cool names? Yeah. Well, Matt Prigg of Metro says, quote, Rogue One boasts thin characters played by great actors scampering about far too many planets with names that sound like obscure venereal diseases. It's a Star Wars knockoff that happens to look a lot like a Star Wars movie. Like, what? What? Come on, man. Jeez. Why do you need to write Jeez. that? Well, that's like venomous. Why do you need to write that? That's venomous. exactly like what those are. Those writers are everywhere. Oh, I know. That dude's I know. Just, I just depressed about everything, looking for something to be snarky about yeah. and get paid for it. Yeah. I'm just a fan. I know they're everywhere, Patrick. I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm just a fan on this podcast of pointing out that it, how unnecessary it is. Right. There are versions of criticism that I strongly agree with and say, yes, that is from it. From a analyzation of the way a film is made. I totally agree with you that that was not well done. But to mm-hmm. just call the choice of the planet names venereal diseases, like, <laughs> that's on a level. That's on a level. No, that's what man. I'm saying. That's like a writer who's venomous, who, like, isn't going out of their way to create any kind of quality journalism. I mean, right. like, you're a critic. There are such things, and there have been historically as very talented, evolved critics whose followers continue to read them because they love their judgment and taste. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think when you go out of your way like that as a critic to kind of stab something and venomously, it, it really honestly is just doing harm to themselves. And I think we covered the dialogue and stuff and how that that's definitely one of, granted, again, it's a small sect of people that are in, in the professional film critic world that took issue with this film. But one of them was dialogue and how the actors, as we've talked about, are all such amazing theater actors. And, you know, they, they bring so much truth to the screen and all this and that they didn't get a good script. And we all we've already covered that. We couldn't disagree with that more. <laughs> Adam, you had one, but I'll just and I'll say one that I found and I'll shut up because I've done all of the talking in this segment. But it's really hard to find a lot of fan gripe with this movie unless you want to go through and read all the toxic shit on Rotten Tomatoes that people write, like you can go do that, but that's just not good for your mental health. So I don't advise it. But one thing I I heard from not just fans, but like other friends of mine that were our fans, you know, going like, yeah, but, and this was a very meticulous thing, but I heard it more than once. So I thought I'd bring it up. The idea that the whole sequence at the end of the final act of the film, when Jin has to go and align the antenna from a writing standpoint, why, why was the alignment control all the way out at the end of that catwalk instead of with all the rest of the controls for the antenna other than 
to have the TIE fighter fly by, blow up the bridge and make it this suspenseful thing that she can't get back across kind of thing, right? Like, why did they do that? And for me, I never think really stuff like that in these films because it's Star Wars, but also- It's a movie. I was thinking about it and I was thinking about it last night and I said this to Patrick. I said, for me, the first thing I would do to justify that is you have to see the antenna to align it. So she goes, you go out on the end of the catwalk to turn the control so you can see which way it's pointing, you know? There it is. But second of all, this is a broader scope thing, but the tech in Star Wars is such an interesting aspect of the whole thing. You know, how how like outdated it all looks, but how cool it still feels. Rogue One, by the way, I think nailed it by- Nails it. Slightly buffing up the tech, but keeping it in the world of, this is a small example I will use. In the original trilogy, like any screen on a Star Destroyer, any TV screen would get light reflecting off of it, like light in the room because it was a glass television. If you notice in Rogue One, like all the screens are probably green screened, but they're flat, stuff like that, where it feels a little more contemporary. You know, it feels like a laptop screen as opposed to a television screen, stuff like that. But same graphics on screen. And so I said this last night that if you want to suspend disbelief about the tech and like why they still have to have cables to transfer data or why they have to have data cards or like the giant hard drives in this movie, which I loved. We as human beings that live in reality have spent the better part of my generation and the one behind me with all of the post landing on the moon brilliance that we have as a species developing tiny devices that allow us to promote ourselves through pictures of whatever we're eating for brunch that day. And so much energy has gone into wireless communication and self-promotion, social media. I mean, that's such a huge sector of technology. These people are building tech to survive and win a war, and that's it. There are no creature comforts in their tech. So to me, it's always tracked how like low res the communications and stuff like that. Like as long as you can get a radio to work, we're good. But why they would have spent their time on being able to have gravity on the ships and hyperspace travel and all those things. So the technology in Rogue One just to me was like one of my favorite parts of the film. It felt like pedestrian and simultaneously, you know, incredibly futuristic. And that, that, and it walked that balance so beautifully. Yeah. I just felt like I had this revelation last night of like, well, why don't we have spaceships, but we have supercomputers in our pockets. And I was like, oh, well, because Instagram. Yeah. We could do a whole episode on why this makes sense. But I will say in short, you can actually look to fairly recent human history to see exactly what you're describing. During wartime, they simplify shit. Everything in Europe during and immediately after World War II, it's like we have to crank out a whole bunch of shit. It has to be robust. It has to just fucking work. Right. Whether that's the architecture rebuilding Europe immediately following or during wartime, just like this thing is square and long and it shoots stuff. Make a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that tracks. You know, I, I want to just uh, tag on because I remember, Ryan, you bringing up this point and it was a really good point. You talked about how people complained about the difference in technology and the lack of balance between it. And you brought up how... These were a group of people, instead of turning all their information inwards and into apps and into capitalism and into like things like this, they were turning it toward just like, we just need to make a ship. And this is exactly what you're saying, Adam, that gets there and gets there fast and doesn't break and lasts a long time, right. aka Millennium Falcon. And then like, we just need to like, we need to have something that's going to deliver food properly and resources to people properly. We don't need fucking Snapchat, which <laughs> is what we're doing now. And we're just like looking inward and at ourselves right. and into the phone rather than outward with tech technology and that somehow you thought would bridge the gap i'm just repeating your point would bridge the gap between this kind of why is it somehow still analog and somehow still digital at the same time and how can they coexist it's all military shit too that that shit exists right now you know star wars tech is tech for the people by the people you know (laughs) yeah like you look at 
aside from like the brand new like joint strike fighter or whatever the fuck it's called and the brand new fighter jets that we have, most shit is 20, 30, 40 or more years old. It might have mm-hmm. brand new computers under the hood, but the shit looks old on the outside. Yeah. Like what we're using to battle around the world looks a lot different than what we're using to tweet dick pics. The, la- <laughs> the last time you got on a Boeing 757, it was probably built in 1985. So. And lastly... If you look at the prequels, like on the streets of Coruscant, it looks like fucking Tokyo there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those people down there that are tweeting dick pics are using the flashy technology. The people that are fighting the wars are using the simple shit that just gets it done. Well, I think that was part of the storytelling that- It's I, called I, Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> I want to believe that, I, I want to believe that Lucas thought that through with the prequels. And one of the reasons yeah. why they're so shiny and CGI laden is because he wanted to paint a picture of this sort of indulgent, extravagant society that was about to be thrown into the dark ages by the empire. And so the tech reverts almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, the shiny ships and the kind of more curvy, sleek bodied sports car looking ships and stuff. Those, it's just like you said, it becomes this more, okay, this has wings and it flies, build it. Straight utilitarian. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Shout out to Doug Chang on all that shit too. Um, Lastly, this one, I get it now, but in the theater, I didn't, I was fine. Grand Moff Tarkin is played and voiced by Guy Henry. But the face was replaced with CG using a really high-end complex process that they used to... They actually had a cast of Peter Cushing's face from a horror movie that he had done before. So they pulled that cast of his face and then they scanned that in 3D and then used that as like the foundation for the 3D model that they put over the actor's face. So cool. So they had a really high resolution, really realistic reference point. To this point, still, I think this is the most legit looking CG human period. A lot of people think, mainly people more in visual effects, you'll find a lot of people on YouTube talking shit about how this still is in the Uncanny Valley, as it's called. For anyone who doesn't know, the Uncanny Valley is this kind of like part where you go from something being cartoony and us accepting that. You can see a cartoon dog and just think, oh, that's the cutest dog. I just want to hug that fake dog that's clearly not a dog. But something that looks almost human, but just one click off is like, oh, that's gross. I don't like it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Most people say in visual effects who want to critique this say that this is in that uncanny valley. I personally, when I saw him on screen, I didn't know anything about the production. I saw his face and I reached over to my wife and grabbed her leg like, oh my God, how did they do this? Did they pull old footage? Like, is this a prosthetic? I was fucking baffled. Granted on screen in a theater, it's darker. Shit looks different. When you see it on TV in 4K, it's like, you'll notice it. But I was blown away. And then I asked her after, I was like, was there anything about that old dude? Did anything strike you as weird about him? She's like, I don't know. Was he in a movie that I, that I don't know about? Like, I, <laughs> no, I don't get it. Right. She had no idea. I asked my nephew, same thing. He's like, I, I don't know. Is that the guy? Is that his son? Like, how is that possible? Like, mm-hmm. no idea. I would also say that the, um, the Leia version of this they did at the end, much more uncanny, as you put it. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on the Tarkin thing. I knew what they were doing and I had read about mm-hmm. it. Nonetheless, when I saw it, I was like, holy shit. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I watched it on my TV screen and so I, I actually did notice, but it wasn't something that threw me because I knew what they were trying to do. I feel like this is going to be one of those situations. It's kind of like, go back and watch Jurassic Park right now. And you're looking, you're like, wow, that T-Rex looks fake. How did I ever believe it? But when I first saw it, I loved loved being able to go on that journey with the filmmakers. And I felt like I was very happy to do that in, in this version of Rogue One 2. And I think that, yes, somewhere down the road, I may come back and rewatch this and be like, that looks so fake. 
but I, I don't right now. Especially the way they, when they first revealed him, if I'm not mistaken, it was through the reflection in the glass, which also really helped yeah. mm-hmm. that transition to his face yeah. because all the reflection stuff, they didn't have to be as detailed. And it was awesome. It was also just mm-hmm. if that's how you not knowing you had to do CG on someone's face, that's the shot you should be using to reveal that character to the audience. Yeah. If the guy was still alive. You know, it was rad. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned Jurassic Park because they used some of the same techniques as Jurassic Park, hiding a lot of things in shadow. You know, you put th- something out in bright light, you see it right away. You see Jar Jar yeah. Binks is clearly a CG character. But you hide some things in shadow, and in the 90s, you can make a T-Rex. Here, you can make a dude come back from the grave. So I think it was brilliant. I thought it was really cool, too. I think the spots where you will notice it, if you look really closely, it's the lips. It's those little kind of micro sub-pixel movements. But I was going to say, when you're watching either of the performances in Rogue One specifically, the, the place after repeated viewings where I noticed this tech, is in the teeth, in the lips and teeth, like you said. Yeah. But again, that's just so... Teeth are traditionally one of the hardest parts that CG folks have had difficulty with. It was one of Pixar's yeah. sort of like last bastions that they wanted to cover after fur and hair. I mean, it's, it's yeah. been really yeah. tough for everybody. The point is this film was very well-reviewed and enjoyed and loved by many. So we've given too much credit to these guys who, as Patrick put it, just needed to stab someone. Yeah. Yeah, man, I already said it. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about shit that we love. I love you. I know. Pyong. That sounds not enough. I don't know what the fuck's wrong with me. <laughs> Why'd you make the cartoon boner sound? I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, CG boner, CG boner. <laughs> From a live cast. Yeah. It's amazing how they bring that boner back from the grave. It's beautiful. The teeth, though. Um, so, favorite scenes. <laughs> the dead bone. Oh, shit. My side hurts. Um, the cold open, which is a first. Yeah. There's no other Star Wars film that has a cold open before the, the main title card. No crawl, but still throws to the nostalgia of an opening sequence in a, in a Star Wars film. Yeah, so we have a scene that then jumps time rather than putting that on screen as a title with a bunch of yellow print. The look and feel of that planet, it's all kind of fucking humid and it, it just looks... Iceland. Yeah. So awesome. So sweet. And we get right off the bat that Krennic is just like this passive, aggressive, sinister, evil motherfucker. And he's going to be the dude that all the way until the end we're dealing with. And he sells it so well right off the bat. I was like scared of the guy like, oh, fuck, what's he going to do to these people? Oh, fuck, please don't, don't shoot this little kid or whatever, you know? Yeah. Patrick, you, you pointed out last night how he calls the child it. Find, yeah. find it. it. And we know later in the film that he clearly knows it's a girl because they lived on location where they were, you know, making the plans for the Death Star. So he knows that he has a daughter and he says he, they have a child. Find it. Yeah. This is where the writing is really good. And this is where whoever was criticizing the writing is wrong. <laughs> you bring in two incredibly talented actors, Mads Mikkelsen and Ben Mendelsohn. They come in. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what their relationship is. We don't know where they are, what they want, why they're there. And very quickly, in a very, very short period of time, all of those things are clear. We know the relationship about this father, that he you know, eventually is going to have to be taken and go to work and that they don't want to kill him, but they do want to kill his family. We know that they have a past relationship, Krennic and uh, Nurso. Again, we get that character detail that you had just talked before. Find it. I mean, it's so good. And we get to watch an excellently acted and well-edited scene between two masters of the craft. It's a wonderful way to kick off the film. 
Yeah. Cinematography too in that in that whole sequence. Beautiful. As most people have found, shooting in Iceland is the one. You know, <laughs> what what film or show has not that has an outdoor fantasy at least is not shooting in Iceland now. But mm-hmm. the way that scene was like so as as most of this film we've talked about had that like desaturated kind of gritty vibe to it. But if you watch it, the the saturation of the green in that scene, it just like pops so hard to give the idea that really he's like, rich. He's a farmer, and but he's like a terraforming kind of farmer, you know, like they're creating life where there is none. It's kind of the vibe amidst all that volcanic ash and stuff, and mm-hmm. just yeah. it's just so sweeping and epic from right from the get go. You see the Death Troopers for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. like as a fan, especially guys like us, like a hardcore fan. That's such an early holy shit moment to see something so new but so familiar. It is one of the strongest opening sequences in all the films. And the stakes are established so well right off the bat. It's super high. And very realistic. And and not not kitschy or cute. Right. Which is my complaint with the lack of stakes in some of the, the newer films. Is that everybody gets yeah. a little cute in moments that we need to be frightened where like Harrison Ford had this incredible ability to keep the stakes extremely high and also crack some jokes in there. Because yeah. it was like... Harrison Ford made the choice of I'm cracking jokes as a defense mechanism because this is what's going to make me feel good to feel safe in this very dangerous situation where some of the newer movies, the choices were almost felt like they were just trying to crack jokes. Right. Uh, What do you got next? I don't know if these are even in order. I was doing the classic, what did you call it? Thought diarrhea. (laughs) Watching the movie and frantically typing in the notes. Um, I love the scene where... Jen sees her father for the first time since she was a child in the hologram with Saw. Yeah, I choked mm. up. The truth she brings to that moment, like especially towards the end, right before the explosion and the, she collapses, like there's this moment of her trying to hold back a complete full-on like fetal position breakdown that is mm-hmm. so powerful and they just let the camera just hang on it, watch her go through it. Really loved that. And Beautiful. also loved the dialogue. I mean, like Stardust and and telling her yeah. how he's always loved her and all that, the kind of classic adventure movie trope type stuff, but it just was done really, really well. Loved that scene. And remind yourself, like from the point of view of the non-actors, that what she is looking at while she's filming that scene is no hologram. It's all her imaginative yeah. work. This is where the luxury of having a theater-trained actor comes, and their imagination is so powerful. And also what's right in front of her that you don't see is a mic that's right in front of her face, and she's looking at cameras. She's looking at none of that. And to mm-hmm. yeah. deliver that performance uh, And that camera without, was like up in her grill in that scene. Right up in it. Yeah. That shows the, the quality of talent that we're looking at in Felicity Jones. Dude, and immediately following that, the interaction between her and Saw... Mm-hmm. is I, I continued to choke up through that. Actually, when she, when Saw first sees her and he thinks that she's there to kill him and how fucking heartbroken he is, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. The dude's got fucking one leg and shit and he's done all this terrible shit again for the rebellion and now this girl that he raised, he thinks is going to come fucking kill him. Yep. So their conversation's really brutal. Mm-hmm. She's pushing it away, you know, and it's, oh, it's great. Awesome Saw Guerrero moment. Also, if you just, it's a tiny one, but from a fan of, acting and film and people's performances watch again when he opens the sort of manhole cover mm-hmm. and his his gesture he gives for her to come with him is so chosen to be like this is my character like it's so like deliberate and just i don't know it's a little tiny thing that you immediately because i think force Whitaker had a little bit of a challenge here because he's such a famous actor where a lot of these people in this cast are well known but they're not marquee 
leading men and women that you see the film and you're like, oh, right. but Forrest Whitaker is, you know? And so seeing him in a role like this in a fantasy role and that costume and everything, he had to really make some choices to make that Saw Gerrera feel real and feel like this is not Forrest Whitaker. This is not the Oscar winning actor. This is like, I'm playing this gritty war rebel in, in a Star Wars film. I don't know if that's making sense, but I just think, oh, I think Forrest sense. Whitaker had a real challenge yeah. because he's the most recognizable actor in the film. Yeah, dude, for me, for whatever reason, my Forrest Whitaker is Forrest Whitaker from Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> this like nerdy assistant, like clumsy dude. So good. So to fully accept his character here and be like scared by him and impressed and fully invest, not to say that I'm the fucking bar that he needs to shoot for, but you know. Well, it's funny because we we talked a lot about this last night, and this is sort of my "I love you, I know" is our our every death scene. So I'm, I'll talk about yeah. them briefly as I can, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about I think the talent of Gareth Edwards here and the cast that he assembled. And once once again, all of these people: Mads Mikkelsen, Forrest Whitaker, Riz Ahmed, Felicity Jones, Alan Tudyk, Donnie Yen, Wen Jiang playing Baze, Ben Mendelsohn, Diego Luna. All of these death scenes all were incredibly powerful. That's a rare thing. It's a rare thing that you kind of get death scenes that all strike you. And all of these actors too are all incredibly talented at summoning vulnerability, at really making you, I mean, Ben Mendelsohn's playing a bad guy that you feel for, you know, you wanted him to die, but you also totally right before his death got the humanity of, oh my God, my own people are about to take me out and I failed and here it goes and I know it's coming. I loved the death scene, Cassian and Jen's final scene, Diego Luna and Felicity Jones, where which could have been so cheaply handled with like over-the-top romance, but was way more existential and celebrated their friendship, which was much, much more of a deeper love than the kind of traditional cinematic uh, romance and love story where we, we usually would get like a big wet smooch and instead you got like two people holding each other because that meant more to them in that moment than anything sexual. My favorite scene, which I already, I mean, I'm, I'm skipping ahead, but Donnie Yen and Wen Jang's, uh, the uh, Chirrut and Baze's final scene, man. I mean, yeah. oh my God. Those two, they're dynamic the whole time. They're like- So good. It's as if all of these actors, you know, Riz Ahmed, the same thing, his final before he, right when he sees that grenade get and the realization his that face. hits his face. Forrest Whitaker, when he's looking at the world exploding right into him. Accepting his fate. Absolutely. There's a lot of acceptance in there. There's a lot of like, but what all of these people do, it's almost as if Gareth Edwards took all of these actors and said, all right, here's how you're going to die. Now let's work backwards. Let's take this yeah. moment right here and let's see all of the things. How can we shape this character's arc and journey to most... Uh, deeply affect the audience when this moment happens. And and it was with such, such wonderful success. I love when Jin and Chirrut meet. Mm -hmm. uh, she kind of passes him and then he's talking to her from a distance. Says something like, what is it? Well, he starts with, I'll trade you something for the necklace. And that, that catches her off guard because he can sense the crystal on her neck kind of thing, you know? And yeah, the introduction to his character in that scene is so effective. He says, what do you know about kyber crystals? Then you know, she kind of just says like, yeah, just my mother, give me this necklace or whatever. And there's so much, again, like layers of like, there's nerd shit under there. It's not just this brilliant writing and then dramatic performance, but also all these layers. And that leads us into, I mean, Easter eggs and all this shit later about kyber crystals and what they mean and how they just like blew up, expanded so much into the cinematic universe, all this stuff about 
that was kind of just an extended universe in this film with this very subject, you know? Yeah, I think that it was also a really cool way introducing Chirrut, introducing his character to still connect everything about this to the Force. Yeah. Because that runs through this whole film in a major way. But it sticks with the the everyman theme. He's clearly Force-sensitive. Yep. But he's there as just a regular, everyday Joe protecting the temple. Just like all these mm-hmm. grunt soldiers we see, just like the Rebel Alliance Council feels so much like the old trilogy, like they're in this dirty underground base. And Mm -hmm. just that feeling of like, these are the regular everyday people who fought the battle on the ground. But he still emulates that Jedi feeling. His costume, his staff, you know, his his way of moving, his knowledge of martial arts that translates into the way Jedis move and fight. You see all that and it subconsciously that kept Star Wars fans so married to this movie from start to finish because it had that familiar trope that is needed. You got to have that. You got to have the force. I was actually going to mention that later, kind of in final thoughts, but I think that's maybe one of the biggest reasons why this was so much more loved than Solo. I was just going to say that. And that's why we do this podcast together. (laughs) The force is such a big part of this, even though it's not about Jedi and Sith and so on. And there's no mention of the force in Solo. So I think everyone who says, oh, I just want a, a dirty, gritty movie that doesn't have any lightsabers. It just has fucking guns and shit. And I don't care about that stuff. I want to see this in Star Wars. Yeah, but you still want the Force there, mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah, it's a missed opportunity to not take Han Solo and start to introduce a lot of his skepticism around the Force in that or get, give you an idea of why he's skeptical about it. Or You could have easily had so many moments in that film to throw around uh, yeah. that theme. Or we could have had endless moments in the trilogy that now isn't going to get made, which sucks. Yeah. Well, what, I'm not sure if this is what you're going to go in with Chirrut's uh, uh, thing later on, but I, what it almost feels like the vibe with his character is like he didn't quite get to finish training, maybe because he went blind or he was born blind or he was never accepted into or something, but that he's a sort of believer. He's force sensitive and he knows he's force sensitive, but you even wonder as you're watching it, it almost feels like. He's like cosplaying. Like he says it so much to himself that he believes yeah. it, but he not yeah. maybe is actually force sensitive and that he he just believes in the idea of it. And that's the thing that's keeping him afloat in those dangerous moments. You know what? I would say my interpretation is that in the shadow of like the Jedi having been this this massive presence in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he's in a fucking stellar cover band who was never like um, (laughs) confident enough to write their own shit, even though they had the skill. It's like, well, I'm not fucking Kurt Cobain, you know, I'm not this, but no, like, no, dude, you shred. Yeah. You know, it's like, you don't have to be a Jedi. You can just be an amazing force user. Also the idea (laughs) that he would have been a youngling that the council swept up if, if they found him. I think the blindness is a valid point too of a possible, you know, why did he, why is he not a Jedi? But the idea that he would have been 10 years old, you know, Revenge of the Sith, he looks mm-hmm. a little older than Luke and Leia would have been, you know, at this time. Right. But timeline wise, he would have been a little kid in the prequels. And that's not an option anymore because Order 66 and they're all gone. So you can't even be a Jedi if you want to. Because I think they did enough stuff with his character. There were enough cool scenes verifying his awareness and connection to the mm-hmm. Force. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's a guardian of the wills, which yeah. we'll talk about yeah. shortly. I'm excited to talk about that. Uh, favorite moment, favorite scene, you know, another addition to the list. Did the whole Yavin 4 base reveal just when you realize like, oh. Oh, dude. 
oh, we're in the bunker where all the X-Wings are parked right before they go to take down the Death Star and they're just, (laughs) we're living here now. Yeah, and fucking Jimmy Smits walks in out of the shadows in the war room and the Force theme comes on. Yep. Sitting on my couch in broad daylight crying earlier. You know where else the Force theme rolls with Bail Organa is when he is pulling Mon Mothma off to the side and she kind of whispers, your friend, the Jedi, and it goes, dun, 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 right in there. And it's like, Dude, yeah. just chills, chills. So good. Like, mm-hmm. like it's even amongst the rebels, you can't talk about Jedi. Yeah. It's that scary. It's, it, it was that enforced. You can't even elude. Straight Nazi Germany. Exactly. World that was War- what I was just going to say that. Again, why we do this podcast. It's like you and your whole, Rotats. not just you, but your whole family will be executed because of your connection to these people. Yeah. Um, and again, so well done in Rogue One and not as well done in some of the other films. The actress that played my Mothma, the stakes were high in that scene, even though it was two seconds long. I bought that. I bought like, she's scared yeah. to say it out loud in front of anyone. And that's why she's whispering. Not because she's an actress that's playing a scene where she's whispering. That chick, by the way, really nails Mon Mothma. Yeah. Car- uh, Caroline Blackston, Blakeston, who played the original Mon Mothma. She's, you know, she's in her 80s now. So obviously she couldn't come back for that. But they didn't have to do anything to this woman's face. Yeah. They didn't have to put CG. I mean, she just, great casting, first and foremost. But her vibe, her mannerisms, spot on. I have a, a couple of kind of broad Sweeping favorite things that I think most people would agree on. Just both times that the Death Star is used. I mean, it's just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. That's a place where I will lean into CGI and say thank you for it because we yeah. truly get to see the power of the Death Star like we've never seen it before. Yeah. Even in the remastered versions of the original trilogy, it's not as epic as this looks and feels, you know, when it fires on the planets. Also, the idea we a new a new way to use the Death Star, like the pinpoint targeting of a, of a base or a city as opposed to destroying a whole planet. Yeah. That was that was a new idea, which was cool. The space battle above Scarif, I think, is maybe the best dogfight space combat in all of Star Wars history. It's almost like they looked at the final battle, the kind of parallel storylines of Return of the Jedi and said, let's do this, but even better yeah. and more modern. One, you know? A couple of la- little, just little cool things that I picked out rewatching the film last night. There's one amazing shot of two X-Wings that like dip down into sort of the perimeter ring of the shield generator. And they're like these mm-hmm. sort of rafter type things. You know, they're, they're like beams that are supporting or whatever. And the X-Wings are just darting through these like v-shaped beams and the camera kind of follows them it throws a little bit back to sort of the trench run type stuff that they've done in the films but it just it's just like so it was such a good use of cgi they selected where they wanted to spend the money on which sequences and what's what shots and it just was awesome and that said i will finish that whole thing up with the two star destroyers crashing into each other i mean dude (laughs) as much as i love when holdo flies the cruiser through Snoke's ship. That's one of my favorite right. moments in Star Wars history. And it's from The Last Jedi. So fucking suck it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, those Star Destroyers, dude, the one like sliding across the top of it and like shaving off the bridge. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned before, the sequence of them pushing it down into the station that, that's generating the shields. Just yeah. that whole sequence was so mind bending and massive in scale. And again, seeing it for the first time in a theater where the audio was super underwhelming and then seeing that in IMAX the next time was like, oh, okay, I get it. Dude, and it's extra gnarly because they established the scale so well leading up to that. Yes. Like everything felt huge. So you're like, 
oh, fuck, those two huge things. Like, it's mm-hmm. scary, mm-hmm. almost. Yeah, you know? it's very economical. They don't have a shot in the film that doesn't later mean something, you know, mm-hmm. and then they yeah. sneak it in there. Another one that we haven't talked about is, dude, is Vader coming in with the That's, lightsaber? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I was just trying, trying to say, get the card through the door. I was just going to say, if we don't all three agree that that's our favorite oh scene, God. I'll be surprised. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was so Vader nuts. entering. I mean, it is. So let, let's save that because <laughs> that's that's the winner. Clearly. But let's save that. And I have to say Vader's first introduction actually in the film is I, I forgot how awesome that is when awesome. they roll up and he's in the fucking diaper tank, you know? Yep. Awesome. Also, do we know who played him out of the suit there? Yeah, yes. I, lo- I looked it up uh, last it, night. It should have been fucking Hayden Christensen, man. Spencer Wilding, also an actor by the name of Daniel Napris, are credited on IMDb as playing Darth Vader, and then it separately credits James Earl Jones for voicing. So I'm not sure which one of them was possibly the, the body double in the suit scenes, and then also maybe mm-hmm. the other guy that's listed there was the in the tank. I'm not sure which was which. Yeah. Hey, you get the feeling it's probably Spencer Wilding. I mean, just the way I'm looking at this. And then maybe one guy was like stunt Vader and one guy was like acting Vader. Right, right. That whole reveal is sweet because we don't see him in the original trilogy. All we see is helmet off. That's the most, right? Mm -hmm. So that's gnarly because he's old by then. I love the... Sith loyalist, Sith eternal, whatever they're going to call him, but the the old the old dude in the in the hood that like yeah. comes through the giant blast doors and kneels down, just just reestablishing that regal royal feeling that Vader brings with him to the character, like this lone sage wandering in there to tell yeah. him that Krennic has arrived. And they're on fucking Mustafar, which is so sick. They are on Mustafar, which is awesome to go back. But also, those are the kind of things in, the, in these movies that are cool with tech again. And I may be going too deep here, but they didn't call into the room and say, Lord Vader, Krennic is here. The drama with a, an old dude in a costume coming in to bow down and say, not like some dramatic thing, just Lord Vader, director Krennic has arrived or whatever he says. It's like yeah. so epic feeling and um, gives Vader again that feeling of royalty and fear and intimidation. That he brings with him. Yeah. Piggybacking on the uh, the tech conversation, you and I had a great convo that maybe you want to take over about Sagarera's sort of related breathing tech, like but a little bit more rudimentary than Darth Vader's high money version of the breathing tech. Yeah. Fun tidbit: if you watch it closely, when Sagarera exhales, it's the same sound that when Vader exhales. So it's very much the same style or tech of apparatus. Yeah. Keeping Saw alive. He's got like the pedestrian, like I made it in my garage kind of configuration. And Vader's got the, I've got the billions to put into my. Right. Vader's got a Bentley and Saw's really got like a rusted out 88 Corolla. But like. It's like a nice used car that that gets the job done and might break while you're traveling on the highway. Right. Um, New segment, everybody coming in a little bit. At the end of this, we're going to have a medal ceremony, which is where we're actually going to decide on our favorite. But Chewie doesn't get one. Not, not yet. Um, <laughs> the last thing I'll, I would throw in is the final, you know, the final moment. The, the way they connected this film to A New Hope and revealed Leia and what are they bringing us hope, that moment. I got one more. I mentioned this before also, but Cassian's monologue when he's tr- sort of trying to convince Jin that he believes her and that he wants to fight is great. He really, you know, you hear throughout they're calling him captain. He's the one giving the fucking orders, but like, him standing there with that group of rebels behind him really establishes him as the leader of this group, the leader of this rogue group, essentially. It's a beautifully written monologue. It clearly sets him up for this Disney Plus series that we're going to have, whether or not they were thinking that at the time. 
it's just really fucking good. And it made me choke up. Again, I'm fucking emo for this shit. <laughs> you are. You are. Uh, so, you know, we, sorry, we didn't also mention when, when we were talking about deaths, the K2SO death, you guys. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. my gosh. What, what a scene. awesome scene. Dude, one of the last, like, blaster shots he takes to the back, it's, like, oh. really gruesome looking and mm. almost, almost organic looking because it, like, melts the metal yeah. on his back, you know, and it looks all kind of, mm-hmm. oh, it's almost like he's bleeding. Skin. So yeah. gnarly. And then they show that close-up on his face on the ground. And yeah, his with his eyes lights, going out. His oh, eyes going man. out and you're like, why do I feel this way for an inanimate object? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> good. Dude, Another fucking scene. There are too many good scenes. The first like fight scene, little battle with Chirrut and Jin and everybody. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. You know, and really fucking lays out all those troopers. Yeah, right before Baze comes in and kills everybody because he's about to get annihilated. After you're like, whoa, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then like just a flood of stormtroopers yeah, yeah. come in, and and cool yeah. character intro. By the way, again, we barely knew who these people were. I mean, in that sequence, what are we talking? Two, three minutes. We yeah. knew exactly who these people were. We knew yeah. exactly what their relationships were. We knew what their their credos were, what they believed in. I mean, it's very economical storytelling. It's high quality writing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about favorite quotes. Yes, let's. I was looking at the list, especially the ones that I put on this list. And I realized that there's a competition, I think, for show stealing between Chirut and K2SO. Some of the most legendary force-driven quotes ever are in this film. And some of the most legendary comic relief from K2SO. Yeah, for sure. It's good shit. You know, it's like the nice balance in the force. Hella balance. <laughs> is that what the kids say these days? Yeah. Hella's back. <laughs> the strongest stars have hearts of Kyber. From our boy Sherrit. That's a good little like uh, Easter egg-ish kind of thing, you know? Well, the thing with Galaxy's Edge, to be honest, which if you've listened to the previous episodes of the podcast, you guys know how completely dweebed out Adam and I were on our trip to Galaxy's Edge in California, but the Kyber crystal has become like thing. I mean, it's like a big part of fandom right now. So, and this film really kind of opened that up, you know, with that line, to be honest. I mean, Cassian tells her that they're mining Kyber crystal from under the temple before they go into the city, I think. Right. But nonetheless, like this is your first exposure to it, really. This is Kyber Crystals going mainstream, essentially, out of the EU. And now we know that the Death Star's weapon is powered by Kyber Crystals, which we didn't know until this film, right? We did not. Kyber has gone viral. (laughs) (laughs) Um, fuck. The Force is with me. I am one with the Force. And I fear nothing, for all is as the Force wills it. Cheer it again. Come on, man. Uh, That is my absolute favorite quote from the film. And honestly, maybe of all the films ever... I am one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. It's really good. It's so good. And I think from like nerd theater point of view, it's like when Shakespeare was writing, they were writing with like rhythm fully in mind because of how it sticks in your head. And I mean, when I heard that and the way that they sort of mumble it at the end, which I want to talk about later in the metal scene with his death scene, but I am one with the force. The force is with me. I was immediately transported to Indiana Jones slash crusade. Only the penitent man will pass. Yeah. Only yes. the penitent man. And there's a rhythm with that, you know? Yeah. Like, da, 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 And it's same thing with like, uh, I am one with the force. The force is with me. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's yeah. literally Shakespeare wrote, you know, with iambic pentameter because the rhythms were like 
did something to us physically. Why you gotta steal that from me? Why you got? Why? Why can't you let me look like I know what, what I'm talking about? I was just. Oh, I didn't say, know you were gonna do that, bro. Just I was gonna over. say I was gonna try to look and sound really well. Sound you can't look. I, I guess I don't. I'm not looking anything right now because this is radio. <laughs> I was gonna say, well, I know you're the Juilliard grad and everything, but isn't that what we call iambic pentameter? Um, well, not in that, that it, with with the I am the one with the force. Force is not actually. Never it's mind. like two. Um, I'm one. Yeah, it's two non-stressed. I'm one I with the force. Yeah, it's Bob. But he says I'm. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. Bum, the force bum. is with me. But that's still not. Bum 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 bum. That's five each line. Is that not what no, it is? No, but it, uh, yeah. Just correct so me. I, w- I guess I'm one with the force. It, well, it, pentameter is the number five. But I that's correct. But I am is. Are there any haikus in this film? <laughs> no. There are no Japanese poems about nature. Fuck it. Not a fan anymore. <laughs> I do think, though, that you're absolutely right, though, Ryan, in the sense that I think they actually wrote that line with rhythm in mind. I mean, it, it really does uh, just scream at you when you hear it. It's a hook. You know what I mean? It is. And this fucking, um, at the end of this, all is as the force wills it. That's like one of the four or five gifts that i use just like on rotation it's in your favorites some shit happens yeah it's there i use that another one another fucking solid philosophical drop from chariot there's more than one sort of prison captain i sense that you carry yours wherever you go so good and that's a fucking mic drop as well on cassian andor right there he like sums them up in one little line it's like, I mean, it sums up like all his everything he's dealing with yeah and his psychological weaknesses Provides a lot of depth for Cassian's character as well in a very short span, you know, and gets me hyped for the show, for the Cassian Andor show. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where it's like, he's got some dark shit we get to see. Yeah. And it's just like great everyman wisdom that any, any human being watching the film, hearing that line can relate to that at some point in their lives. Saul Guerrero used to say, one fighter with a sharp stick and nothing left to lose can take the day. We have no idea we're coming. They've no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance. And the next. On and on until we win. Or the chances are spent. I just love that one because it's like the wartime rally. Yeah, monologue. She's standing there with all those dudes and the costumes are just like so right on. It looks like Saving Private Ryan in the Star Wars galaxy, as I've said like 10 times. But she's like just rallying them. And I, I just love the end of that one. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance and the next on and on until we win or the chances are spent. Fuck yeah. It's good shit. It's also awesome to see, you know, a wartime St. Crispin's Day, to reference Shakespeare again, Henry V, just in case, uh, speech where like a, a badass female character is acting as this wartime leader. And we just don't sadly see that in cinema a lot. And she absolutely kills that speech yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean i remember I, we were watching together i finished and I, it's like you put your arms up and you're ready to go into battle with her it's, it's really great it's okay look for the force and you will always find me share it last words right before his death yeah yeah very last words and Baze says something in between that's like a little interjection but it's better yeah. if you read it as one quote <laughs> i haven't watched this movie nearly as much as i've watched any of the others i think i've maybe watched it the fewest times but this morning when I watched the ending again, I watched this part and teared up for real. Yeah. Brand new characters to me, essentially, you know, on the scale of my life. And that got me. 
Well, we covered that a little bit about how well they they made us care about these new characters in yeah. this film. It's a hard thing to do and struggled with it a little bit in Solo as a comparison. But this one was just, they were able to write these incredible little scenes where it was like, oh, okay, I know your whole story and I know how, why you guys care about each other and that you're looking out for each other and I can see your whole friendship in, yeah. in a 30-second exchange. So I think that's why it mattered so much when he died. Rogue One, may the force be with you. Admiral Raddus. Mic drop. Calamari status. <laughs> yeah, that was that was heavy. That was a heavy moment. Yeah. That was him basically signing off. We lost some good people down there, you know? It's heavy. Save the rebellion, save the dream. Another heavy one right before Saw dies. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. Krennic mm. um, getting a fucking evil boner over the, <laughs> yeah, over the Death Star blowing away. Getting a genocidal boner. <laughs> right. Lighting up Jeddah. Jetta City. Yeah. And his delivery on that with with such lack of empathy is so great. Right. Ugh, Ben Mendelsohn. Speaking of darkness, the force moves darkly around a creature who's about to kill. Super cool. From Chirrut. He's talking about Cassian right there, right? When they suspect that he, you know, he's leaving with his blaster and sniper configuration. Right. He said his weapon is in the sniper configuration. You may fire when ready, Tarkin. So good. Slightly different delivery. On purpose, I'm sure, from A New Hope, but he nails that tiny roll of the R. Patrick and I were talking about that when we were watching and actually wondering if maybe that was like an alternate take from the original. You yeah. Know? Yeah, that they had pulled audio. They just put the audio in. So close. And he would have done, he would have had five or six takes minimum. That little roll of the R is like so subtle. And it's something that this actor, is, as great as he is, didn't totally nail throughout. It's not a full roll. It's like a flick. It's like, it's like this flick. old English flair. It's a flourish. Good luck, little sister. Baze to Jin. Anything else touching here before we uh, get into the funny ones? Because I don't want to bounce back and forth between. There's one on here that we did that was just really well written. Star Wars comedy. When he, are you kidding me? I'm blind. <laughs> when they put the bag over his head. <laughs> so good. That's the best. Rebellions are built on hope. Said by Cassian towards the beginning. Jin later. Great writing too. It's not just. A good line. It's great writing for Jin as a character to finally come around to to feel like okay, I'm gonna really be part of this and really do something rather than just being butthurt about it my whole life. You know? Yeah. Another indication of how good the writing was, just from, from like a story standpoint, it's so believable that the interaction with Saw and her father's hologram and all that stuff was enough to bring her into the fold. You know? Because you know she right. was brought up around it. She was brought up around Saw and his belief set. You know, until she was 16, I think she says. So it's easy to believe that. She starts seeing all these things happening, and then the final bomb drop for her, obviously, is her seeing her father's face and him calling yeah. her Stardust and all that. Like she's like, "Okay, I'm in." I cried there too, like an emo toddler. Moving on to the comic relief here, it's all K2SO, right? We don't have a single one in here that this doesn't at least involve K2SO. There's the one solid line that you already he, said. He's pretty much the whole comic relief for the film, with the exception yeah. of those Chirrut moments, maybe. But that was needed because of the, Absolutely. as we discussed, the, the rest of the weight of this thing. Yeah. Being kind of um, the, the most seriously played Star Wars film yeah. uh, that there is. There is a good one that's not quite comic relief, but it's, it's kind of just witty and really cool when um, Bodhi fires on the troopers. Like for the first time after he comes out of his thing from Borgullet. Yeah, the yeah. Borgullet trance. He being an Imperial defector fires on those troopers and K2SO looks at him and goes, you're a rebel now, which I thought was sick. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. you're joining the cause now, bud. Like no turning back because you just murdered one of your own. Right. Great moment after um, K2 
K2SO says to Jin after she finds out that they're going to have to go kind of on their own to do something. K2SO says, Jin, I'll be there for you. And after a pause, Cassian said I had to. Oh, I love that part of his character where he just like no filter. Like he just whatever anyone right. has told him to do. He's like, oh, by the way, you know, this is actually what's happening. And this is what right. the shit that's getting talked behind your back. You're welcome. And <laughs> here's another one just like that. Bodhi's talking about what's going to happen if the plan doesn't go as it should when they're trying to they're coming through with the stolen Imperial shuttle. Says they shut the gate, then we're annihilated in the cold, dark <laughs> vacuum of space. <laughs> and K2SO goes, not me. I can survive in space. <laughs> just just a full human existential conversation and just right, him being yeah. like i don't participate in your mortality like no y'all i'm cool i'm cool <laughs> the flip of that was when uh right in the middle of that first battle down on jetta when Jin spins around and shoots one of the other imperial droids and then k2so walks up right behind and goes did you know that wasn't me <laughs> I love that. Yeah, of course. I yeah. Love that. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's such a great reveal, too, because they really have him like kind of deep background and then he pokes his head around and he's just sort of like, um. And then shortly after that, when the troopers show up, they're like, where are you taking these prisoners? Because they think, you know, they think he's an actual Imperial droid still. And he's just like, uh, these are prisoners. Yes. Where are you taking them? I'm taking them to imprison them in prison. <laughs> so good. Cassian starts to speak, and then K2SO smacks him in the back of the head. Quiet. And there's a fresh one if you mouth off again. We'll take them from here. That's okay. If you could just yeah, put so the right direction. It has that vibe of like the chewy prisoner scene in A New Hope, kind of. Yeah, it's like an updated, extra, quick, witty version of that scene. I can't, I can't not laugh through all these. I see the council <laughs> is sending you with us to Jeddah. That's a bad idea. I think so, and so does Cassian. But what do I know? (laughs) My specialty is just strategic analysis. Oh, yeah, he goes, that's a bad idea. Right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Why does she get a blaster and I don't? And then Cassian says something. He says, I find that answer vague and unconvincing. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. It's very high. (sighs) Super cool, like 3PO, you know, like the droids calculating the odds. His vibe is so good. And you needed that dry, witty interjection of like those kinds of lines because otherwise yeah. the critic thing about the, you know, the few bad reviews that said it was too serious, took itself too seriously, that kind of thing. Without him, like it actually might have been a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He like kept it really connected and grounded to the original feeling of, of Star Wars while they were trying to do this super different thing all around him, you know? Yeah. And also, also once again, just worth noting, I love how talented alan tudyk is to make i mean those lines in bad hands aren't funny they just aren't right and he's just really good he's got a great sense of timing great sense of delivery and character he just does so many things well well and we know he has such experience with voice acting he's so good at you know the inflection and the ways delivering the lines without actually acting them on screen super cool was he in a mocap suit on set i don't know the answer to that question i don't know the like the way that the way that phoebe waller bridge was in solo yeah we can look it up. How Alan Tudyk became Rogue One's K2SO. The internet. Oh, I think it is him. There he is. Oh, yeah, I see him. He's fully on stilts walking around. Dude, good for him. No wonder the performance and the physicality performance was so good, too. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So he straight up got on stilts, those little, like, fancy... Like, painter stilts. 
they look like Darth Maul's legs at the end of Solo. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing full images of him in a mocap suit walking around on stilts. That is awesome. What's a mocap suit for listeners that may not know? Motion capture. I've been in a video game before. But what they do is you get on the suit. You have all these little balls or little sensors. I mean, they different places do different things. And it just follows you around the computer system. So basically, they could, you know, by looking through the right device, even while you're doing it live, they can see and get a kind of rough estimation of what kind of physical skeleton digitally would look like for them. And it allows the CG people the opportunity to use your natural actor performance on screen. It's definitely come a long way. Like the pattern you can see on the whole suit there mm-hmm. is pretty common now. They have that technique pretty dialed. Yeah, the pattern they have is the stuff I recognize from like what Mark Ruffalo was wearing for the Hulk and the Avengers and yeah, some yeah. of those newer movies. So where were we? I thought I told you to wait on the ship. You did, but I thought it was boring and you were in trouble. The way he says that too, but I thought it was boring. <laughs> However he does it, it's so right. good. And then a stormtrooper who's who like wakes up, who's almost dying, tosses a detonator at him. He just snatches it out of the air, says... There are a lot of explosions for two people blending in. And then just casually tosses it over his shoulder like a lightsaber and blows up these stormtroopers that are just like coming around the corner. It's almost like slapstick style, but it's perfect at the same time. It's much better use of casual over-the-shoulder toss. I was just going right. to say, yeah. if we want to look at an over-the-shoulder toss that works versus one that doesn't... Well, it's also, that's the kind of character that should be pulling shit like that, yeah. you know? And then he says, You're right. I should just wait on the ship. Yeah, because they would have been screwed if he hadn't showed up. Last one. I'm standing by as you requested, although there's a problem on the horizon. There's no horizon. <laughs> that's when the um, Death Star blasts Jetta City, right? Yeah, and there's that, like, tsunami of soil. Yeah, yeah. Which is another great example of how they really nailed the sense of scale. Because as they're flying out of that, their ship is this tiny little fucking thing. And the whole entire landmass is just rolling like a wave. Yeah, that felt genuinely frightening. Yeah. Yeah, again, that whole use of the Death Star was so different than what we saw in the other films where this had sort of like a hydrogen bomb sort of vibe. It it Mm -hmm. felt more like warfare. Right. Created more of a war zone. That was cool. Bottom line, thanks, Alan, for the laughs, buddy. Looking forward to more. I was supposed to go to bring the podcast to Wales in April for Wales Comic Con and Alan Tudyk was going to be there. The reason I was getting to go is because I have, through the interwebs, become friends with the guy who runs the Wales Comic Con. And um, he was going to try really hard to get us an interview with Alan for the show. But quarantine. It is rescheduled, though. So, uh, Mr. Tudyk, if you're listening, they rescheduled the con, and I look forward to meeting you in August. Same. Yeah, that's right. You can go now. Dope. Thank the maker going international. All right, that's the last one on our list. Let's call favorites. Let's hand out some medals to everyone but Chewy. All right, favorite quotes. We actually didn't even mention our favorite quotes, so we're going to talk about them shortly. Patrick, I know you have a favorite. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is everything, all of my favorite about this movie, everything is all in this one little moment. And I'm one with the force, the force is with me. 
And for me, so there's this like acting exercise that I referenced the uh, only the penitent man will pass. It's sort of like a Sanford Meisner was his acting teacher. And he had this whole thing with repetition where and some people will do it in plays. You'll see people repeat lines and films a lot. And it may not necessarily be in the script even that way. But you almost get to see a version of that exercise, whether it was written or not, happening alive in that entire death sequence. He's walking out. Chirrut's walking right into the fray arguable if he's actually even being protected by the force or just getting extremely lucky and he's just repeating it i'm one with the force the force is with me i'm one all the way into the point that he dies and every time he says it um part of this exercise is it takes on a brand new meaning especially when you get a scene partner and Baze is there holding him repeating the same thing and how when he stands up how it has a brand new completely different meaning uh, than the way that Chirrut was using it. It's just beautiful line and phrase. And then it was so, so gorgeously acted by these really awesome two actors. It was just awesome. It was just awesome. It's a beautiful moment and really stirs up all of like the nostalgic Star Wars feelings. Again, like we said before, with brand new characters, they're giving mm-hmm. us amazing lines, amazing performances, and calling back to the shit that really is going to nail us right in the dead center of the nostalgia bone. If I'm going to do a quick, by the way, just runner-up performance-wise... Ryan and I both talked. I rewound it to to even point this out. But Riz Ahmed, right before he dies, he's having mm-hmm. this 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 debate over the other end of the comms and uh, uh, trying to to explain things to them about the information going through. But he's clearly a person who doesn't have to deal with that kind of situation. Is not used to being under that kind of pressure. And he makes this character choice in the way that he can't get the information out of his head. And uh, the way that he chooses to talk that is so deeply buried into that man that he made three-dimensional with not necessarily a lot of clues of where to go as an actor. And it's all the stuff, right? But you get this great, great, great character work up until the moment that he dies. It's, it's really phenomenal uh, to watch. The look on his face right when he sees that detonator land on the ground inside the ship. Yeah. There's such a quick, I mean, it is a millisecond shift in the expression on his face but it is so gnarly beautiful that realization in one millisecond that he's about to die is it's so real and awesome all right ryan you and i we have the same favorite right <sighs> well favorite quote for me i'm gonna bite patrick a little bit from the same scene cheer its line it's okay look for the force and you will always find me yeah Ugh. really holds like a lot of weight for me in my personal journey through life with star wars finding so much comfort and inspiration from the Star Wars universe over my time on Earth. Look for it and you'll always find the for- that whole concept of it just being a constant and it being a force of good. Like yeah. even in the afterlife, it's a force of good, that kind of thing. I don't know. When we were re-watching last night before recording this, I just was like, oh yeah, I forgot how emotionally weighted this all is for a Star Wars film. I love that yeah. line. But favorite moment, favorite scene? Yes, I think that we're in agreement that... Before you say it, I'll say my favorite quote, and then we'll together do a fucking simultaneous jerk-off on this last scene. Copy that. (laughs) Nostalgia, masturbation. Uh, I don't know, man. I think maybe my favorite quote, this is the one that stood out to me most in in my rewatch. Chirrut's quote to Cassian, there's more than one sort of prison. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. It's just a cool metaphor. It's a cool little bit of philosophy. That's like Ben Kenobi, the Yoda level wisdom getting dropped in this film. It's Empire Yoda wisdom, you know? 
Yeah. In 2016, it had been a minute since we heard something like that. Right. What a beautiful way, to, I mean, to simply say like, hey, our traumas will be around us forever, but it's our job to open up the gates and kind of al- allow ourselves to be free. And it's only up to us to ever yeah. move on from, from our pasts. It's a great one. That's going to be mine. So the favorite scene, it kind of goes without saying for true, just straight up Star Wars nerds, right? It's the, the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it does drop your jaw. I mean, you fully are just like, what? So the finalish scene where they're trying to get this data card, the biggest fucking flash drive we've ever seen. Which I love, by the way. Again, love the old school and tech. It ups the stakes and it's totally believable that they have to yeah. deliver this thing by hand. The rebels have this thing in hand. They're trying to pass it from the larger transport to the rebels on the Tantive Four. So they're rushing. They know that someone's after them. They don't know it's Vader. They don't know what it is. It's almost like horror movie style. Like he's just, you know what I mean? They're running. They're, everybody's fucking freaking out. They're trying to get through this door. Essentially the airlock between the transport and the Tantive Four. The door half-ass opens and they realize they're kind of stuck. And then they turn around, and in the shadows, in the smoke, you just see the red lightsaber ignite, and it's Vader. And they still don't know what it is or who he is, and they're just like, open fire! And everyone starts shooting, and then he just starts hacking these fucking dudes up, force slamming them against the ceiling and throwing them against the walls and just unleashing in a way that we didn't know Vader at that point in time could do. Because we saw him with Kenobi, like, their little geriatric lightsaber fight. But no, he could slam some motherfuckers. We were talking about in the Rise of Skywalker episode about how in the original trilogy, Vader kind of has this like Michael Myers quality. Like, Vader's coming. Uh, okay, we'll run. Like, <laughs> you know, he, he's just going to slowly and ominously walk behind us. And you know that's like not really the thing. It was just limited to the way they could shoot back then. You know, right. And you got to see more of his ability in Jedi in the final lightsaber fight with Luke. But it was still, as you just said, like the fight with Kenobi and A New Hope, it it wasn't that far evolved. It was still a little stiff because of the costume and stuff. Mm -hmm. So this was just, finally, we got to see how the all-powerful Sith Lord that the whole galaxy is terrified of, we got to see, like, really why. Because dude is indestructible. And you said something about, it's like slashing. Especially against dudes like this. Well, that's the thing, too, by the way. You know, the joke that stormtroopers always miss, right? They can't never actually shoot anything, and but they all just get blasted and dead. And, and like, no matter what your skill level is as a rebel, you are are able to kill stormtroopers, but not the other way around. And, like, this shows true vulnerability on the other side for the first time, really, you know? Two things I really loved watching um, for that sequence. One, I love how they chose to make him use the lightsaber with such fluid ease. I mean, it was like he was just flicking and flicking back these shots right back at them in their face. One-handed as well. Yes. I mean, just like like none of this was a matter. This wasn't any of the big lightsaber fights we're going to see later because he just doesn't need to use that much effort. Yeah, and it kept, that that kept his body language or his the movement, his physicality, you know, of the body, yeah. uh, the physicality. That's the word I'm looking for mm-hmm. of the body actor that was in the suit stayed very true to the original Vader. Still minimal. Yes, yeah. it was still it was still Michael Myers marching down the hallway. Like, yeah, you could still have run away from him if that door didn't shut. <laughs> exactly. We still haven't seen Vader go for a jog, but I guess, I don't know, it might be hard. It might, might be hard when you've got no legs below the knees. But the second part I was going to say, though, that I love so much about that scene is knowing 
that when we see him make his entrance in A New Hope later, he's just done that shit. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's on the heels of this, like, he kind of saunters in in A New Hope with with great power, but it's also with the the sense that, like, also my breath's not out from this thing that I had to do a couple seconds ago because I didn't have to use much breath. And you said, Adam, talk about slashing and, like, watch it again, everyone. There's, like, some pretty gnarly bodily harm in that scene yeah cool thing about you know star wars and and like film rating in, they are rating them pg-13 for sci-fi and violence or whatever however they word it but you don't really run the risk of having to deal with blood and gore because a lightsaber injury as we've seen is more of kind of a, like a singeing you know or like a cauterizing yeah cauterizing yeah. it cuts through and seals the wound at the same time this is how we now know darth maul survives being literally cut in half <laughs> He just is slashing the shit out of these dudes. Like the one guy he throws to the ceiling and like cuts his midsection open. It's like, yeah, it's crazy for Star Wars. It's crazy. And then the one straight through his abdomen and through the door as the door opens. And he yeah. just like cuts through the door like butter and the dude. Gnarly. Nar, nar. <laughs> That's a good uh, real life depiction of shredding uh. the gnar right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's my favorite. That's Ryan's favorite. Congrats on your medals, everybody. Put them on your mantle. You know what? That's my favorite, but I would also include the following, the very last scene where we see Leia, if you can call that one extended scene. Right. Vader walks up to the edge of the platform where the ship had just taken off and the fucking dark side music, Vader's theme comes in and it's badass. And then we go to, we cut to the inside of the Tantive and the last rebel who has the flash drive or whatever you want to call it, comes up to the door of the bridge. And we see a cloaked white silhouette of a person. And it's like, oh, shit, we all know it's coming. And she turns and it's Leia. It's fucking awesome. It's amazing. And what what's so particularly, I think, awesome about that was it was on the heels of already just having our mind blown. I mean, it's like one thing to another. I mean, we've watched all these people die. It's like the flow in the storytelling and where you get that moment. It's like it's it's icing. I mean, it's icing on the cake. Like we already got yeah. everything we could have possibly wanted. And then you're just like, oh, and here's another little gift for you. Yeah, the level of nostalgia at that point is already just overwhelming. And then they throw that on top of it all. We may have said this already, but if you haven't done it and started A New Hope immediately after that scene, like skip the opening crawl and just go to the the opening shot of the film right when the credits start to roll in Rogue One. It's really cool. I did it this morning, actually. I'm proud of you. Thanks, bud. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the Den of Antiquities. This is what we're calling our Easter egg section now, since this is becoming more of a thing with us. And as we move forward in new Star Wars films and series and everything, we're no doubt going to have a ton of them. I can already think of a handful in The Mandalorian right off the top of my head. So this is going to be a thing. We're just making our long format podcast even longer. You're welcome. So Ryan Key, I'll give you the wheel. Drop some knowledge on us. Well, you did this so well for um, Solo. And, you know, this past week you were working on editing. So I took the reins of that I don't usually take in our process and try to do some research. So I was just going through and looking for Easter eggs in this, and it was really fun. These are all super common across every media outlet that reported them and talked about them, but I pulled from ScreenRant.com. First one that was super cool is Pondabama and Evazan, who are the two kind of creepers in the cantina on Mos Eisley in A New Hope. They appear in Jeddah City. And, you know, we're to believe that they get annihilated with everyone else in Jeddah City. So it's like, later, dudes. Uh, but we see them, you know, moments before their their death. But it was just cool. I have the death sentence in 12 systems. I don't like you either. 
the ghost, the ship, uh, ghost from Rebels, which uh, I have not watched Rebels. So I've seen the first season. Don't cancel us. Okay, we're not canceled. Uh, but Ghost from Rebels is um, in the hangar or, or, or on the Avon 4 Rebel base. Um, it's like an overhead shot of the ship that you can find. This one I love and I had no idea. And it's super nerdy and super deep and it's just killer. So Chirrut and Bayes are called, um, Cassian explains to Jen that they're, they're called Guardians of the Wills. And uh, Wills is spelled W-H-I-L-L-S. So it's a reference to The Wills is a callback to one of George Lucas's original titles for A New Hope, which was originally just called Star Wars. And then in quotes, it has, so I'm assuming this was attached to the title, which you can tell why this didn't end up being the title. The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills. It's a little long, I think, for the general public to get their head around. It's a little verbose. Yeah. Uh, Try to say that five times fast. The Journal of the Wills was a concept created by Lucas while drafting the scripts for Star Wars. It was meant to be a record of events in the galaxy written down by a group of higher beings known as the Wills. The original idea was that R2-D2 would be relating the events of Star Wars to a member of the species 100 years after the Battle of Endor. The Journal of the Wills would have connected the fictional world of Star Wars to the real world, hence a long time ago and a galaxy far, far away. I understand why that plot, that didn't stick, but how fucking cool is that? It's dope. And did you know George Lucas's original idea for 7, 8, and 9 before he handed it over to Disney? Actually, I think the first draft of his script, or at least the, the treatment, included exploration of the Wills as they exist in the Force, or sub-Force, actually. They're like below midichlorians. And there was going to be this whole plot. I don't know if it was central or a subplot or what, but it was going to be a big part of it. Force-sensitive people in the galaxy that are not Jedi kind of thing. The wills are like sub-microscopic beings, supposedly. Copy that. It was going to get real fucking mystical. I just love the concept that... Not the rapper. I love the the concept that uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in his mind originally was because R2-D2 was telling this history to someone a hundred years after it's all over. That's you know? pretty so, dope, actually. Yeah, it's really wow. cool. Okay, moving on. Uh, there's two stormtroopers on patrol on Scarif, and one of them, as they're walking by, says to the other, did you hear the rumor? The other one answers, yeah, T-15s have been marked obsolete. And I think the other one says something like, it's about time or whatever. Really cool idea, T-15s pre-A New Hope, dropping an old model of like an old car that that body style is being retired or whatever, because um, in A New Hope, there's that kind of classic line where Luke says, I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than, or hold on, I guess I could do that better. I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters. I used to bonsai womp rats back <laughs> Yeah, he sounds like a middle schooler. He has such like a, my dad has one of those. <laughs> it's funny because when that moment came up too, I looked at Ryan and I was like, yeah, but why would they say it? And he looked right at me and he goes, because they're car guys, man. They're like a couple of guys who really like cars who were talking about them. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I guess that works. Yeah, it's like water cooler talk at work while you're while you're patrolling the, the base at Scarif, you know? Yeah, they, they have an Instagram account that they're really proud of that has like 33 <laughs> followers about their cars. Right, yeah, where they show like the mods they make to their old vintage T13s, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, 3PO and R2 have a quick cameo on the Yavin 4 base, and it is actually Anthony Daniels again, continuing his run of being in every Star Wars film. Wow. Biggs Darklighter, Luke's pal from Tatooine in A New Hope, is also in the Battle of Scarif for about a millisecond. You have to find him, but he's in there as well, which is a super cool throwback. What we now know is solo crossover of Saw Gerrera's soldiers, or uh, partisans as they're called, 
Tam Posla, seen in the gambling den in Solo. He's kind of just like watching over everything because he rides with Emphis Nest in Solo. Um, he is in the scenes with the partisans here. And then Benfic, who we know as Two Tubes, and his brother Edrio or Edrio. I'm not sure exactly how you say this, but they have this whole cool backstory. Their species is called Tognath. And they like are avenging the empire's decimation of their home planet in a bunch of EU stuff. I'm not sure which one of the brothers they're showing there in the scene, but either way, it's the guy with the the kind of ventilator mask looking on. And so um, you see him in Rogue One. And then when you're watching Solo, if you notice it at the end, he's just he's in the film. One of them is in the film. So very cool connection to Saw and the like origin of the rebellion. Um, next one, super cool. The the prison planet where Jin is being held at the beginning of the film is called Wobani, which is a um, an anagram for Obi-Wan, which is just pretty radical. Cool. The, a couple of cool things. Um, when you first meet the Ursos, come inside and check out our, uh, our little farming apartment. When you first enter um, the Ursos domicile, whatever you want to call it, there's blue milk. The planet is called Lamu, but there's blue milk inside their apartment on the table, or like a pitcher of it on the kitchen counter or something like that. They have it in a pitcher. They don't suck it from anything's tit. Exactly. Also on Lamu, the, the home planet of the Ursos, one of the death troopers picks up a stormtrooper doll off the ground. And super cool connection, kind of Easter eggy thing here. The style of that doll, it's sort of like wooden seeming and like almost like a puppet kind of vibe. Ray has the exact same doll, but a rebel pilot inside of her fallen AT-AT where she where she lives. That's just super cool. Like, let, this is what kids have, these style dolls. I've never seen kids' toys in Star Wars before. Very cool. Another super cool throwback, Easter egg. Um, Red leader Garvin Dreiss and gold leader John Vander appeared during the Battle of Scarif as pilots, Y-Wing and X-Wing pilots. They used um, unused footage from A New Hope to make these scenes, which is super cool because it's real. And also... I didn't know this, but this blows my mind to put them together. But Red 5 dies in this battle above Scarif. And that leaves the position open for Luke and A New Hope to be Red 5. Ah. I fucking love that. I love that so much for some reason. I know. And now I'm just thinking how misty my eyes were in The Rise of Skywalker when they're like, Red 5 is in the air. It's just oh, so yeah. cool. So cool. Let's go. Goosebumps. <laughs> uh, so next one. When Jen and Cassian are going through the archives at Scarif, they mention a project called Darksaber. Uh, that's a callback to an ancient black-bladed lightsaber that Darth Maul used to duel and murder a bunch of people in the Clone Wars animated series. Spoiler if you haven't watched Clone Wars. Sorry. Spoiler if you haven't watched The Mandalorian. Yeah, true. Before Maul, it was owned by Pre Vizsla, the leader of the Mandalorian group Death Watch. So that's super cool. And I was watching it, going through these, and, and she just, she's like, dark saber, super cool. Again, like a way to drop these little things in for super fans without making it go over the heads of the average, everyday person viewing the film. All right, next one, I'm going to um, butcher this name because no one ever says it li- live in the film. Like, no one ever says this name out loud. It's just on Wikipedia and just out there that that's the character. But Weetief Chuby, he's played by Warwick Davis, who first played Wicket the Ewok in Return of the Jedi. You know, you recognize him from all of Ricky Gervais's shows. He plays Leprechaun in all the Leprechaun movies and Willow. Willow, what a film. And Professor Flitwick in Harry Potter uh, movies as well. Does, doesn't he play the goblin from the bank too in Deathly Hallows? He does. He plays Griphook. Right. In, um, in Gringotts. Also, he comes back for some more Star Wars um, after this. He is, I don't know the character's name and I'm not going to look it up, but he's part of Emphis Nest's crew in Solo. And he also returns to play Wicked again in that one of those last scenes in Rise of Skywalker, which is just such a cool thing. That, that had to have been awesome for him to throw that costume back oh, on. Yeah. 
Um, okay, this one I love. Uh, going back again to kind of some of Lucas's original concepts being modified and used, you know, now in the extended universe and on into the films. The Kyber Crystal. The Kyber Crystal was first introduced in Star Wars lore as the Kyber. Sorry, I should say that Kyber Crystal here is currently in in the canon spelled K Y B E R. Originally in Star Wars lore as the Kyber spelled K A I B U R R crystal in the very first Legends novel. So if you don't know, Legends is um, novels that were written, what, Adam, 80s, 90s, but they're not canon. Anything before the Disney acquisition. Yeah. So they talk about Kyber Crystal in those. But it was the first Legends novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster. In the book, the Kyber Crystal is a mysterious gem that could bestow great power over the Force to anyone who possessed it. But Foster didn't make up this rare gem. It was actually George Lucas who first created the Kyber, spelled K-I-B-E-R, Crystal, as a MacGuffin in one of his earliest outlines for A New Hope. So... The concept of Kyber Crystal has been around for a long time, and I love that it's been there from the beginning, and they sort of just over time refined and honed what it actually is. And in my opinion, this is actually the best. Some of that stuff you could say, well, the original idea was better, or Lucas's original concept was better. But this one, to put it in lightsabers, and it's able to be mined, and it's this like precious valued currency in the galaxy that explains so much of what the Empire is doing and why they're terrorizing all these systems to find this shit so that they can build the Death Star. And that it's the power behind the weapon itself. I love that. Yeah, so that's, I'm sure there's more. If you guys find them, shoot them over, whatever. But if you want to watch the film and pause it, looking for some of that stuff, it's really cool. There you go. As cool as all of that is, I still sense something. There is a great disturbance in the force. I have felt it. I don't have many gripes. I had to kind of dig for them. But I have three here. Ryan, you put none. I don't have any. Patrick, you have none. All right. I got no gripes with this film. There's one gripe that I feel like is legitimate. I feel like Bodhi recovers from the boar gullet kind of mental hangover because they say some percentage of people don't recover at all from this boar gullet thing, right? It gets into your mind and like an animal that is like a truth serum sort of mind meld kind of thing, right? When Saw first interrogates him with this to make sure that he's not bullshitting, you know, that he actually is a defector. He seems to like almost just like Pretty instantly, it's like he goes from being almost like unresponsive to bam, he's back and he's 100%. Do you guys feel that? I think that wasn't maybe, again, and it's I'm like you, it's like digging to find shit, but maybe not the best plot device used in the film. You know, maybe they kind of had that written and it was ready to go and then it was kind of like, oh, because it does feel that way. It's like this huge dramatic, you're never going to be the same human you were before this interrogation. And then he's just like full on board and, you know, making decisions and part of the fight. I I agree with that. Like there just could have been some other method of interrogation. You walk that line though with, with star Wars and young people watching it and stuff. They can't like, they can't be like waterboarding him. You know, they can't, they can't have like torture scenes really, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess they could have just dropped a line about how severe it was going to be in terms of its long-term effect. True. Instead just be like, Oh, this is going to hurt a lot. Yeah, I back that gripe. Either way, this one I'm on the fence about. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations, director. The line from Vader to Krennic. I thought it was a little... It's a little on the nose. It's yeah. a little on the nose. Might have been cooler if he just choked him out and walked away. I, <laughs> right. I agree, but, but when I heard the line, the thing that also made me feel good, it was like getting you know under a familiar warm blanket because those are the kind of lines that he used to always have. Right, true. You know, that, that's, a, that's a very Vader... Typical line, Vader sitting around the table, you know, with his council 
and uh, saying something that's so directly on the nose. Sorry, Anakin, you're not the witty one, actually. It's it's just very villainy. You know, it's 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 villainish. Yeah, yeah, old school villain. Yeah. Well, that being said, while we're on the Vader thing, I found myself this last rewatch not loving James Earl Jones' performance, his actual voice. I remember noting when I was listening to it that there was a, a, a an absolute difference in how he was uh, portraying it. And I, I don't think it got it like got in the way of my experience, but I did note that there's an obvious difference. I mean, obviously there's an age thing and, yeah. you know, who knows what he was thinking about, about the character in the booth, you know, 40 years ago versus what his mind's going through when he's in a recording booth now. He was 85 years old when he did that voiceover. I, mean, I think justified in being a little phoned in as a performance. You know what I mean? Like, guys, I'm fucking 85. Are we done yet? Or it's just all he had to give. <laughs> or, yeah, or it's not even that. It's just like, it's hard sometimes as an actor to like, you know, the thing that was so brilliant that clicked into your brain 40 years ago with all the detail, detail that it had then is just different now. And yeah. you've evolved as a human being and, and now you're being asked to go back in time and, you know, and, and also psychology because all that plays into what we, we hear when we hear him. And I, yeah. Uh, so I, I have a lot of sympathy for that situation. So I do feel like a dick for even bringing that up. But I- <laughs> you know what? I fucking hate you, man. <laughs> no one touches James Earl Jones. No one touches James Earl Jones. No one puts James Earl Jones in a corner. <laughs> I would have loved, last thing, I would have loved to see a little bit longer of kind of like a team moment with this group, Cassian and K2SO and Jin and everybody, to more establish the kind of out of the six total, I guess, that they are, to establish more of a group vibe, kind of like a a Saving Private Ryan kind of just like platoon heart-to-heart moment telling old stories maybe kind of thing. Yeah, There were a few here in the transport and shit, but I would have loved to see one a little bit longer just to really raise the emotional stakes for that team. I think they were focusing so much of the energy on the relationship between Jin and Cassian. Yeah. You know, maybe more of that was shot, you know, them sitting around the campfire kind of vibes, but... I think they had to focus their energy on that relationship the most. So that wraps up everything, right? Yeah. Final thoughts? I mean, obviously we love this film. Anything else in closing before we move on to these final segments? I think I would say with all the rumblings of the Star Wars film side of things being slowed down and put on hold, I just hope they look back on this one and remember how successful it was and how widely praised and loved it was and know that we want more of this shit and that if you do it well we love it and you make money and all the things they're worried about so it's like i understand the concept of fear of oversaturating the market and the the idea that you know the last jedi and solo were the first time that this that star wars films had come out within a year of each other and all the issues that that could have caused and things like that but this film is so undeniable as far as the way people loved it the way critics loved it the way it did something different, broke from the mold, but stayed so familiar. All those things. It was just a really well-executed attempt at the first film outside of the films we know and love. So my final thought would just be putting out a beacon of hope that they keep making these films. I absolutely love that you just said all of that. And I will only say that I completely endorse that and agree with you. Thanks, bud. Yeah, man. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into the test bay. Patrick? Yes, sir. You're familiar as a listener 
I'm so pumped about this section. Either ors, as far as pronunciation goes, uh-huh. A-T-A-T or at-at. You know, it's funny because I said A-T-A-T, spending time around Ryan, but I actually always said at-at walker. Always. Really? Uh-huh. Because I used to always call them Imperial Walkers. And somebody was over looking at this piece of art at my house that is this great art by this guy who I'm totally going to advertise to you. And, and I'm getting paid nothing for it named Thomas Dagg with two D-A-G-G. And you can go to thomasdagg.com. He's a Canadian photographer and he takes very realistic kind of gritty urban photos and very subtly incorporates parts of the Star Wars universe into it. And it's awesome. And so the one that I have is kind of this urban park covered in snow with an at walker in the background. And I just love them. It's one of my favorite, also one of my favorite vehicles from the Star Wars universe. I had the toy as a kid and it was just my favorite thing. And it's not in the box with all of my other shit. And it just breaks my soul into a million pieces. I wanted that one so bad. That's the one that I wanted. I had the Falcon. I shouldn't fucking complain. I have it. Yeah. First world problems, but first world privileged children problems. <laughs> yeah, guys, I had no toys. Ugh, so gross. Patrick's all, more porridge, sir, please. And we're talking about our Star Wars <laughs> toys and not having the ones we wanted. Sir, just a few coppers, please, <laughs> sir. What a bunch of assholes. This is the world. All is okay. You dicks. <laughs> Favorite things. I have two here. I was going to say I'll let you decide, but that's not how this works. So. Okay. Favorite force power. Favorite force power, uh, just old school force choke, man. I mean, there's nothing better than the first time you see him do that, right? When he walks in in that very first scene and and he just, comp- I mean, that was magical. I mean, that was magical. Mm-hmm. You're like, whoa, this guy's fully evil. He's choking him. I mean, never. it'll never get better. It'll never get better. And what a cool yeah. way to display the the power of the force with the tools you have at your accessible to you in 1976 when you're filming this movie. Totally. Of all the energy they were putting into developing the the miniatures and the space battles and the sets and all that stuff, that stuff's obviously wicked powerful and it creates the, this fantastical universe. But then think about at the core of the whole thing is the force, right? And all they mm-hmm. had to do was <laughs> a hand motion and an actor pretending to be choked to just drop the knowledge on you. No technology, yeah. no visual effects, nothing. It was just really brilliant. Yeah. And what a way to celebrate how evil somebody is too because yeah. who the fuck just chokes people? Mm-hmm. In a meeting. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. as punishment for anything. It's like, nah, I'm going to choke. I'm going to take away your air yeah. in front yeah. of everyone publicly. That's a tense boardroom. <laughs> the other thing is that that little rumble, that little bit of audio mm-hmm. really kicks it up, you know? Ugh. Would you rather, we're going to do a first here. This is a dual would you rather since you guys grew up together-ish. Okay. I'm ready. Since you're both some degree of musician and actor in your lives, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Would you rather have the career that you've had or have the opportunity to swap the two of you? Oh, man. Wow. Huh. That is heavy, dude. Why are you going to do us like that? Well, actually, I think I already, I feel like I know what Ryan's answer would be, and I feel like Ryan knows what my answer would be. I'm going to try to answer it in an earnest and grateful manner, because it would be unfair to myself and my bandmates and my managers and booking agent and, most importantly, fans all over the world that gave me the career that I have been able to have 
to say that I want to do something else or would have preferred to do something else. So I can't say that I would choose to swap even like at any level of any other career success level or anything like that. I don't think I can graciously do that because it's, that's just, that's just a dick move. I will say though, I'm fully a victim of that cliched thing of like, when you're a musician, you want to be an actor. And when you're an actor, you want to be a musician. There have been plenty of bouts in my mind through my career and my life where I'm like, I just, cause I, for all intents and purposes, I quit. I just quit acting. I started when I was five or six years old. I did a lot of creative stuff as a little kid. I didn't really find my path until high school when I got to go to a performing arts school where Patrick and I met. And, and if I can, and if I can interrupt and just let everybody know, like the first, the first play I ever did in my entire life, Ryan and I played brothers. That's how actually how we got to know each other really well. And it was oh, well. heavy. And Ryan is a, an extremely, extremely talented actor. Oh, I thanks, mean, he's, man. he's very, very, very good at it. Thanks, he really man. gets it. Yeah. So, so I, I think about that. I appreciate that. And I think about, I, I've certainly thought about it all the time. Cause I, I go through those moments of like, dude, you just quit. You just dropped it and quit. And, and for those that don't know the story, I basically quit because I was a brat and I didn't get into the college I wanted to go to. And I wanted to make my parents angry. So I thought I'd go play in a band. And then that panned out sort of somehow. Um, but I just <laughs> quit. And I think about how much of my life and my energy and my passion I devoted to it growing up. And, and I, sometimes I'll think like, man, it would be really cool to exercise that muscle. Not saying that I couldn't ever do it, but the idea of swapping my entire career, I think I'm extremely grateful for where I'm at in life and the opportunities and experiences I've had. And it's because of my music, my musical career that, that's gotten me here. Patrick, how about you? I'm I'm 100% in the same boat. And the reason why I thought Ryan would know how I'd answer is just because he knows I'm not a person that lives in regret much. I mean, it definitely creeps in on things here and there, but... I've had a hard go, you know, things didn't come to me. I didn't start, you know, finding success until, you know, I booked um, a play in Los Angeles when I was 35 years old. And then Paramount Pictures came to see that and gave me, you know, the villain in a Tom Cruise movie. And then I got a started TV career in my late thirties. So it's a, it's a, it's been a really interesting road. And even with all that struggle, I love the, the path that I've been on. And I, I like that I continue to have the opportunity to improve on this craft of acting and, and trying to get better at it. And in, in terms of trading it out for music, it's, uh, I mean, the fascinating part for me is I, I can't wait to continue to write music actually. And um, I'm not afraid of doing that when I'm 40. And I, I, with both of these things, weirdly, I've never really had an, a big intention of trying to get rich or successful or famous off of them. My mentality is always let those things be the byproduct of quality work. So Maybe one day I'll create something uh, musically that people want to watch the same way that they've been wanting to watch me act. So, Well, I get we'll to see. say this as well, as you so kindly talked about our time acting together. Patrick was actually playing keys and singing background vocals for um, my first ever like U.S. headline tour that I did by myself post 20 years in Yellow Card. I put out some music and toured it for the last couple of years, and we did a U.S. tour in the middle of the winter in a van and it was grueling and gnarly and, but we shared the stage every night. And so to your credit, giving me credit for my skills in acting, I'm standing up there every night with this dude singing that I'm like, how, how am I supposed to sing with this person singing on stage? Because the dude's voice is oh, just stop. rips. Dude, the first time I saw you post high school was your Broadway debut singing in Fiddler on the Roof. Like your voice rips, yeah. your voice rips. That's all I'm trying to say. 
Well, I appreciate. Well, yeah. So fun, fun little facts. Yeah, Ryan was after we acted for you know together in the first play I ever did. The actual first night that I was on stage on Broadway making my debut in front of an audience, Ryan was was there for that. We go way back, and and then last year, yeah, he called me up, and I'd always talked to him. I was like, hey, man, I was like, I really I want to get like the road experience with you, and fully. I had always told him I want to go out as as a as a roadie. Like I was like I'm gonna go like I want to move gear. You know, we have some friends from high school used to work with him, and I knew what that was like. And I thought I I would be good as a grunt and just to have that experience. And when he gave me the call and asked me to come do it as a musician, I legitimately thought for the whole first half of the conversation that I was going to be moving gear and was already like kind of agreeing to it before I realized that I was going to be playing piano and, and singing with him. Well, you got the road experience because yeah, we were humping gear in a, in blizzards. It was the real deal. We drove through, I thought, what they was like Salt Lake City's, like one of their most insane blizzards in recorded history. And we drove through that. That was a wild night on the road. It was. I thought I was going to die a lot that night. Adam and I are like, yeah, welcome to the club, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> um, Yo, let, let me tell you about something. Granted, we were, we were, you know, in our late thirties doing this, this story that Patrick's telling now, but you and I are like, oh yeah, welcome to the club of being a bunch of young kids without their seatbelts on driving 80 (laughs) miles an hour in a blizzard, pulling a 14 foot trailer that you've like never driven before in your life. Right. But it's like, Hey man, fuck it. Let's go. This does segue pretty well into the guest segment. Quick updates on what you have going on. I know you mentioned a little bit of stuff at the beginning. But what can we look for with you with your shit? Um, right, right now I've got um, so I've got this television show on Amazon Prime called Absentia. Um, Quick Sell. It's a it's a crime thriller. Um, premises. Now you meet two FBI agents, and she goes away uh, to f- chase down a, a serial killer, and everybody thinks that this badass FBI agent that she's dead. And six years later, after her husband has remarried and their son has grown up and never really known her they end up finding her and she has no idea where she was. And so the, she's kind of the hero of the story played by Stana Kadic, um, who delivers a really a wonderful, wonderful performance on the show. And my sell to people is, I mean, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Season one, I think we were kind of working through some kinks. It really feels like kind of an indie TV show. And then season two, everything about the show just steps up. Performances, I think the production design and value the scripts, just the story, everything. I mean, we get some new cast members who are wonderfully talented, and I really have enjoyed doing the show. And so season three comes out uh, any moment now internationally here in, in March, April 2020, uh, but it will be out most likely on Amazon Prime in June of 2020. Don't quote me on that, but that is a, a very high likelihood as that's the way that it's been uh, for the last couple of years for the prior seasons. But it, it will definitely 100%, I can tell you without a doubt, be the best season that we've had of the show and a really wonderful season of television. I got to watch a lot of very talented people deliver, I think, some of their finest performances of their career. Dope. Absentia season three on Amazon Prime. Right on, man. Well, Patrick, I think we both just want to say thanks for doing this, dude. It's Obviously, we focused the first part of our podcast on the film universe of Star Wars. That's going to expand and grow as we build this thing. But having someone who makes movies come on here to talk about making movies with us was just super fucking cool. So 
Thanks for being here. And side note, I'm really enjoying my quarantine time with you. So I'll see you in a moment when we <laughs> turn off the computers. I'll, we can have some coffee or whatever. But thanks for being here, man. Love you, bud. And uh, No, my, my absolute cool. pleasure. And thank you too so much for genuinely, I mean, this reinvigorating my, my love of this universe. That's awesome, man. We appreciate the feedback. So I don't know how you feel about this, but I think this is a perfect quote to use here for the quote of the week. The first in-universe quote, Rebellions are built on hope, spoken by two characters in this film, Cassian Andor and Jen Erso. This is kind of just like the foundation of the entire Star Wars universe, and I love it. It's such a cool through line that they did in many ways such a good job with this film. Speaking of Cassian Andor, if you guys want to go back and listen, we have a one-quarter portion episode where we kind of dig into what's known about the upcoming Disney Plus series that will be a spy thriller starring Diego Luna and Alan Tudyk reprising their roles as Cassie Nandor and K2SO coming hopefully 2021. So you can go back and check that out and listen to some of the stuff we found out about that. So to wrap it up, Patrick, where can we find you on social media? Yeah, my last name is spelled H-E-U-S-I-N-G-E-R, Husinger, and it's at Husinger on Twitter, at Husinger on Instagram. And friendly warning for uh, anybody who might get triggered, I... I'm very heavy on politics on Twitter, but there are no politics on Instagram, so you can pick your poison. Ryan, Bill. Oh, yeah, we're doing this part now. Hey, guys, I'm Bill Key, and uh, you can find me everywhere on social media <laughs> at William Ryan Key. That's everywhere. Uh, what about you, sir? I'm Bill Russell. No, I'm not. I'm Adam Russell. <laughs> and you can find me everywhere on social media at Adam the Skull. If you're looking for the podcast, you can find us on uh, the gram at ThankTheMakerPod. You can find us on Twitter at ThankTheMaker1. That's just the number one. And also, getting deeper in recording these episodes, we are getting more listener-generated content through Patreon. So if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash ThankTheMakerPod. And you can join the community there to submit uh, questions and ideas for either ors and all kinds of cool stuff. So keep the podcast going over there. Thank you guys for your support. We're coming along. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, may the force be with you. 